0: Welcome to this episode of Moments in Leadership. A special thanks to Jeremy Kofsky and Matt Miranda from Lethal Minds for show notes and editing support in this episode. You guys are a huge help, so thanks. I want to first begin by personally thanking all of you who support me on Supercast subscriptions. Your donation to the effort makes me feel like I have a team of true supporters behind me that believe in and back the project, something that really inspires me and keeps me going with the project. You should all know that your support is meaningful, and I know this from the emails and DMs that I get on Instagram telling me how this podcast is being used for PME and general informal leadership discussions all the way from formal schoolhouses down to NCO classes out in the field. It's facilitating conversations between officers and enlisted in ways that open up real communication between all the different leaders, and that's happening across myriad different units. Stories resonate and I think hearing them from successful leaders makes the challenges that emerging leaders face today just a little bit more surmountable. With only 27 total guests, This project has crossed the 65,000 total download mark and ranks in the daily top 100 chart in the management category of Apple podcast downloads. There are 215 five-star reviews on Apple and 242 on Spotify. So again, I'm grateful. Thank you. You subscribers are all part of the effort and the team making it possible to make the project accessible to everyone who is listening and learning. Okay, on that note, I have a few thank yous to some new supporters on Supercast. Hunter Keeley, who's an infantry officer out with the Magnificent Bazzards of 2-4, Ra. Blake Cheney at the Buy Me Your Beer level. Jared Haig at the hot wash level. Seth Cohen, hot wash level. Jay Trawick, hot wash level. Samuel Farrell, hot wash level. And then a Lawrence Bayonne or Bellion, I can't pronounce it, I'm sorry, it could be French, at the hot wash level. Although, frankly, this could be a pseudonym for some infantry lieutenant out there standing around with his hands in his pockets, so thank you. I did have one donor come in since the last episode, Sabrina Hecht, a retired Marine Corps colonel and a lifelong friend. Sabrina, thank you for over 30 years of friendship and for supporting Patrol Base Habate with a $250 donation through this project. Just a quick ask slash reminder, if you've not dropped a review on Apple or a rating on Spotify, see if you can hook me up with one of those. They really help, even if it's just a sentence review on Apple. Subscribing helps too, of course. Okay, real quick, I attended a briefing with Lieutenant General Bellin last week, and he sat down with about 10 guests to talk about social media. There were six active component folks there, one person from the Marine Corps Reserves, and then three veterans, which covered the ranks of sergeant all the way through lieutenant colonel. The conversation touched on how social media can increase knowledge and bring awareness to current initiatives, or identify a problem that needs solutions in areas such as tactics and lethality, quality of life, recruitment, talent management, camaraderie and community, um, and deployment opportunities. So it's just great to see this medium being recognized for all of its capabilities, as well as its potential in shaping several different fronts. There's a lot of good happening out there on social media. A special thanks to Lieutenant Colonel Craig Thomas for again putting together another great event. If I had the power to meritoriously promote you to Full Bird, I would. And Ike Ryan, thanks as always for working your magic and to make things happen as well. I owe you a cigar, Ike. Switching gears, congrats to both Sergeants Major Troy Black and Carlos Ruiz on the relief and appointment last Thursday. When I showed up to 8th and I, someone with an iPad asked me for my name and then looked at me and replied, oh, you're in the system twice. It looks like you were invited by both Sergeant Major Black and Sergeant Major Ruiz. So I'll take that as a huge compliment. Thank you both very much. The ceremony was awesome. I loved seeing the all-enlisted parade where every single leadership was filled by the NCO and staff NCO Corps. So great job, Marines. It was really inspiring to see you all out there. Leading that parade, by the way, Sergeant Major Ruiz said that moments in leadership is going to be his first podcast to do once he settles in to his new role, and Sergeant Major Black told me that he wants to come back on in a few years to talk about his time as the CAC so again, thank you both. It was a true honor to attend that ceremony. I also got to see Gunnery Sergeant Abby Sites, also known as Iron Sights, in her new role as protocol for Sergeant Major Ruiz. And fair warning, I saw her in action, and let me tell you, she will karate chop your ass in a heartbeat if the need arises. I also got to meet Gunnery Sergeant Pizzano, who's the drill master at Marine Barracks, Washington, or 8th and I. If you heard the recent episode with Sergeant Major Black, you'll know I asked him who would get their ass chewed if something went wrong with the relief and appointment ceremony, since the two most senior enlisted Marines would actually be participants. Well, Gunny answered that question for me on the spot, so it was uh, great meeting you, 1801. Okay, this episode is with recently retired Vice Admiral Bill Mers, a career submariner who initially qualified on the USS Haddo SSN 604, a permit class, or is sometimes referred to as a Thresher class boat. The Thresher class was redesignated as the permit class after the USS Thresher SSN 593 was lost on April 10, 1963 during deep diving tests off the coast of Cape Cod, killing all 129 personnel aboard making her the first nuclear submarine ever lost at sea. He also qualified as a surface warfare officer and has had commands of the nuclear deep sea vessel NR-1, which is the only 0 04 sub command in the Navy, the USS Memphis, SSN 691, and submarine development squadron 12. Finally, he was the commander of the US 7th Fleet and notably, he was a crew member during the fastest under ice polar transit ever made. And then I love this last part. He's also an honorary Navy Chief Petty Officer. And with that, welcome Vice Admiral Bill Mers. Thanks so much for coming on the podcast today. This is uh, a much anticipated interview. I've been really excited about this because, as you know, I've been trying to get a submariner on here. And you're obviously a retired three star Admiral and Vice Admiral. Who better to get on here than you? So, and, and thanks to our mutual friend Ron Boxel for, for lining this up. But, I usually start out these interviews by asking people a question like, tell me where you're from or how did you get interested in the military? But on my way into work today, I came up with a new question. I'm just going to spring it on you here and see how you you take it. If you can rewind back to the days of Captain Mertz and you got the call that you had just become selected for Admiral, tell me about that day.
1: That is an interesting uh, opening question. So I was doing my normal morning, Monday morning commute, and... I got a phone call from our personnel manager at, at Millington. This is how I found out. Okay. And he made the comment that, hey, I think you heard you've been selected. And I said, no, actually, <laughs> I hadn't heard. And this was, this was a civilian? Uh, no, no. Oh. He, was, he, was a, he was another fellow captain. Oh, okay. And who actually made admiral the following year. So he's a little bit junior than I was. And, and I was on uh, just entering the Hampton Roads Tunnel and just about know drove off the road because i was not expecting it it was kind of a shock now i do say 06 was the best job that's not to say it wasn't a complete honor to serve as an admiral sure you just can get things done
0: as an admiral you can't get done as an 06 right no i i think there's there's similarities there across all the services yeah. uh, you know not to say that I didn't enjoy my lieutenant colonel time, but being a captain was the best time. But a uh, Marine captain. Yeah, right. right. Yeah, right. Right. <laughs> walk, walk by you in the past. I've seen plane. you guys leverage that a few right. times. LA. <laughs> <laughs> I, I was known to have made a couple phone calls as Captain Armstrong without uh, identifying what right, with, uh, right. with branch of the service I was in, but that's great. But, so thanks for that. That's a good story. Just went home and said to the wife, hey, guess what? Yeah, pack your bags. (laughs) Because then you move pretty
1: quickly. I mean, things things come together pretty quickly at that point.
0: Yeah, I got to imagine that's a pretty exciting time. I I think that, you know, when you think about your promotions through the rank, whether it's enlisted or officer side, you kind of, you can foresee yourself up to a certain rank. And then after that, it's, I mean it's really cheese cheese and that's got to be one of those moments. Well, it was you know, most of my when I made flag, most
1: you know, most of my contemporaries and former bosses, I mean, they were pretty impressed I made lieutenant commander. So, <laughs> right, <okay. to> continue <laughs> on down the road. I think a lot of that's just because I had such a uh, live in the moment healthy perspective and just loved every job I had. Really, and I say this sincerely, just looking for the signal to get out, not really caring where I got promoted. Whether I got promoted or not, it was just uh, knowing one way or the other, because as I look at you here and and the setting we're in now and how well you've done since you left the Marine Corps, I wanted a piece of that. I mean, I I I love the Navy and I've loved every minute of the Navy, but I also feel like there is going to be a next chapter and I'm looking very much forward to that and excited about it. Right. And here I am now. Now, albeit probably 25 to 30 years later than I probably expected to get out, but that's just because I had such a great ride.
0: Yeah, it's it's not an uncommon thing for me to hear from uh, from some of my general officer friends who say like, oh, geez, you know, if I had gotten out when you got out, and I'm like, yeah, but if I had stayed in when you stayed in, well, I probably wouldn't be a general, buddy.
1: but you never know. You never know, yeah, right? That's it's just, just her story. point. You don't know. Exactly. And, that, and that should be a theme to this, that there's no planning to make Admiral. You know, we live under this thing called the Rickover Principles, which kind of drives our community. Mm-hmm. It's not just a reactor plant. It's our mentality in submarining all the way through. And one of his big mantras was, you do the best job you can in the job you're in. Uh, And that's your best assurance of success, regardless of what that job is. Trying to scheme and maneuver into the right or wrong jobs. At the end of the day, I think this is true in most communities, you still have to perform. As long as you do well in the job you're in, things will typically take care of themselves. Right.
0: I've heard that from other people in the past, too, which is just perform in the billet where you are. Yeah. And and that's the most critical thing. There is promotion. no master plan.
1: That's right. For anyone. That's right. I get asked that a lot on, hey, what did you do to make
0: Apple? Right.
1: <laughs> so I'm definitely not the guy to
0: ask. Yeah. I, I backed into this at best. Well, using that as a transition, so let's now rewind back to your origins in the military. How did you become interested in becoming in the Navy? How did you become interested in, in sub? And then, of course, I've got to ask, did you do a Rickover interview? or Because yeah. I did read The Hunt for Red October, so I'm pretty yeah, well versed in your community.
1: So I did not. I had met Rickover several times. I did not interview with him. I was actually in the first group after Rickover. He had been in the billet for over 30-something years course originated the program set the standards which we have virtually left unchanged since he's left and then i interviewed with admiral mckee not nearly as eccentric as rick <laughs> i mean my uh, my interview was almost boring i mean it was just very matter of fact he went through my grades he asked me a few questions and pointed questions and then just assist me said you're fine and okay then, and then off we went rewinding uh, before that uh, I was raised in a military family. My dad was a, uh, a pilot, a A4 pilot, a Navy, and I grew up in an aviation family. We were all brought up under the aviation activities, you know, very early in life. So I always had that that love of flying. And then when I uh, graduated from high school, I was not ready to go to college. So I essentially took a year off, uh, worked at a ski resort, grew my hair long, and got religion and a Apparently that religion brought me to the Navy. Okay. Where my dad was, you know, it's about time and my mom fainted uh, as uh, <laughs> I pursued the Naval Academy. And then the adventure started. I just assumed I was going to fly because that's all I knew. But as I started learning the other opportunities in the, in the Navy, I really just wanted to try something different. I'd been brought up in essentially that community And i have a deep deep love of the ocean i'm still an active surfer i still i'm in san diego where i grew up a lot just got back from there
0: yeah i just saw some uh, wave stuff on instagram i guess the waves are really kicking yeah really good uh
1: i I was working out there that's great Uh, I, i literally just got back yesterday it was a lot of fun and i never considered submarines but it started to take root early in my time at the naval academy as i learned more and more i said yeah i think i think i might be interested in that for a couple probably not real healthy reasons, it literally orbited around quickest way out of the Navy with the best resume. Okay. And I could get out of San, out of San Diego. So when I spoke to the detail, we have a very long training pipeline, the longest in the Navy, yeah. I'll bet. Because you have a year of nuclear power training, you have to be on board the boat a year. You have, you know, four to six months of submarine school. If you do it uninterrupted, it's a two and a half year program to get qualified in submarines from commissioning to from starting the training command. Okay. So there could be a delay in going to training command. Yeah. We, we typically start on time, but we've had our problems like other communities of backing up the training command because a lot of our training facilities had to come down for, um, but I, I, I went right through. It wasn't, uh, no delays for me, but about halfway through the training pipeline, the detailer calls you and tells you what boat you're going to and what city. So, Ahead of that, they call you and say, what are you interested in? What do you want to do? Now you're an ensign. So, you know, to the degree they prioritize you is, is probably pretty <laughs> low. <right? laughs> but I gave him a pretty easy target to hit on. I said, I wanted anything out of San Diego. Okay. So he calls me back about a month later and says, great news, Ensign Mers. I got you anything out of San Diego. You with a little more emphasis on anything that was comfortable. So I ended up being the oldest, brokenest attack submarine out of San Diego And I was like, all right, well, you know, what do I care? I'm going to be getting out at my five-year point and so be it. Well, this is back during the Cold War and everybody played. And matter of fact, I was at sea 300 of my first, 300 days out of my first year on, on board the boat and almost immediately fell in love with it. Oh, wow. I had, I mean, I never saw it coming. Nobody was more predisposed, probably not to like submarines or the Navy at that point. And what I saw was a group of locked-on JOS and department heads that, you know, our first Cold War mission was a couple of miles off the coast, of none of your business, doing things I didn't even think were legal, and just watching these guys go through their day quickly assimilated me that I want to actually be these guys. To what degree I, I don't know. Still no long-term plan, sure, but if nothing else just to motivate me to get qualified and
0: contribute. Right. to this team that's awesome so when you when you got to the boat was it you threw your sea bag right on and you guys were going out of the San Diego Bay or was there some sort of dock workup or did they
1: it was about out. a week later that we did our first underway and this was an interesting one because complete inoculation into how the submarine community operates and we're we're small crews you know we're mm-hmm. you know that was a particularly small SSN today's SSNs are you know seven thousand tons or so so the size of a good sized warship. Only, we only have about 120 to 125 crew compared to 350 to 450 on a, on a warship. So everybody's got collateral duties. You know, for instance, there's no damage control parties. Everybody has a role when there's a major casualty. And you start learning very, very quickly. Either you're a contributor or you're not. And mm-hmm. if you're not, I mean, there's a lot of pressure on you from day one. So we got on way, and within that first week, I already learned that these submarines can hurt you. I mean, you show up and you think you got this thing canned, you go through the training pipelines and then you get on the boats and you realize every boat's got a personality and it, it's a proactive community that you have to drive it to be safe. You have to drive it to be proficient. And within this community, everything hangs on your proficiency. And, you know, we'll talk about some leadership traits but you're in a community of a lot of smart people. Mm-hmm. The highest caliber enlisted, the enlisted go through the same training as the officers. They would be officers, except for maybe an opportunity in life or a decision. Mm-hmm. But We all go through the exact same nuclear training. We go through a very similar call program targeted at different watch stations on board the boat. So if you're not proficient in your job, that's what drives the impression of the crew of you as a leader. And a small crew. A small crew. Right. And it quickly becomes apparent this runs very deep because their very survival may be hung on your proficiency. So it's very hard to lead at all in the submarine community if you don't know your job Mm -hmm. because they know their job. How do you generate that respect if you're perceived to be a liability on board as opposed to an asset? And that's very galvanizing for a JO to come aboard. And these particular boats were called the 594 class, which used to be the 593 class, which was the USS Thresher, which is the last submarine that sunk with all hands. That hung over that class very heavily. So uh, Thresher was the first of the class. She was sunk. So the next ship took on the class name, which was the permit class from there on For And these things were prickly. You know, by the end of my JO tour, I just assumed everybody caught fire and everybody had flooding, not necessarily the case. And that really defined how I looked at every position, especially at sea, you know, from that day forward. So, you know, I don't know if I'm unique in that. I, I certainly know I'm not unique to other 594 class uh, Submariners, but we all felt the same way. And I would not have done it any other way. It was such a powerful tour. And it defines so much of how I thought about me and how I grew as a leader based on the adversity I felt, you know, from day one, uh, you get very comfortable with it. <laughs> right. In and in kind of a interesting way, and, and you recognize how important it is to, be, to contribute to the, the success of the boat. And that tour was a long tour. All my sea tours were very long. My shortest uh, sea tour was my command tour, which was only 30 months, uh, which is short, relatively short for us. But every other sea tour was over 40 months.
0: So a lot of time on board, a lot of time at sea, getting to know these, these crews. I'd love to hear about the aha moments, those, those crystallizing moments that were so powerful to you that, that you applied them to your career as a flag officer.
1: The aha moments were common every day. <laughs> for a guy like me who had just no idea what the community was about. And back then, it was just because of the environment of the Cold War. You know, every community has their secrets that need to be protected. But you just didn't know what attack submarines did unless you were on one. Okay. So the briefs don't start. Your basic training, you get the skill sets of operating the boat. But where you're going, what you're doing, that all doesn't happen until you're actually underway. And only the captain, the XO, and the ops, who's also the navigator on most boats, uh, knows what the mission is, where you're going, and what the objectives are. So I'm sitting in this first brief and probably still an ensign because it's only a a week or so after I got on board and just going through the take the location the order of battle the threat and then actually executing the mission still classified still can't talk about the details of it but the proximity we were in to other russian submarines other russian ships feet and i had no idea that it was that aggressive that the stakes were that high and the stakes were that relentless it just kept coming every single day and the team always had to be on their game on how they're maneuvering. And then underneath that, you're on an old platform, which has its own personality. So you're constantly dealing with the onboard issues, the casualties, how that dovetails into the mission and and how unplussed the crew was. And the officers were about just getting through the day with the boat, let alone executing a mission. Mm -hmm. And yeah, this is where your big aha moment is As I mentioned earlier, that this can be a very dangerous business if you're not on your game and you start getting that very heavy feeling early that I better get on my game. I mean, this is all fun and games in the training pipeline until you actually get on board and you have to start start producing. I also had the benefit of having both the worst and the best commanding officer in my entire career on that same submarine. And so leadership lessons abound. That were unconscious I I wasn't even recognizing what I was taking on board and I was not a particularly strong nuke you know I got through the pipeline and and did fine but uh, you know know, nobody was giving me you know class man award or anything like that so I always had to work pretty hard at the technology by the time I got through the training program I started coming together and I felt a lot more comfortable on the boat than I did coming through the training command when you get aboard a submarine you're you're assigned to a division and you're required to do at least a year in the engineering department because then you have to go take follow-on exams that set you up for a department. We get examined either during or before every time you are allowed to go touch a submarine again. Individually? Individually. Okay. Be it the initial training program... Department head school, which for us is not really a department head school. It's a tactics school. It's called submarine officer advanced course. Before you go to department head, you have to pass that. Okay. Before you go on to be an XO, you have to go through the PCO, the pre-commanding officer course to be an XO. And then you have to go through it again to be a commanding officer.
0: Is that a class of 20 people or is it a class of one when you go through pre-command? Is no,
1: they're, they're probably about 20. Okay. So it's a, it's a 15 cool. to 20. It's a class of people. It's a class okay. of people. But everything's accountable. You sure. have written exams, you have oral interviews, you have, if it's a, a C command, you have to pass practical factors, you get evaluated by instructors, you know, everything is evaluated. Nobody likes it, you just get used to it. But this community is slaved and believe believers in the external review, the external inspection. And if we have time, I can talk to you how that probably manifested in some of the collisions we had out in 7th Fleet. The absence of those that we've since instituted and we think we've we've got that fixed so there's at no point in your career where you are not re and rechecked to make sure your knowledge is at a level commensurate with the job you're going to do and the pre-commanding officer one when you're going to command as opposed to going to xo also includes you know three plus months back at naval reactors relearning everything you learned about nuclear power. You don't learn anything new. It's just a, it's a check to ensure that if you have any lingering questions about nuclear power, now's the time to get them answered. Because when you report aboard and you relieve as commanding officer, you are legally responsible for the safety of that reactor plant. And they are crystal clear about that.
0: Right. So be, be crystal clear about that to a listener, like the Marine infantryman who's listening to this. Right. What does that mean crystal clear about the, the legal aspects of that reactor? So you are 100% accountable for the
1: safety of that reactor plant. Mm-hmm. Now, you're obviously, you're, safe, you're legally accountable for the safety of the ship and the crew. From a nuclear standpoint, we don't make the distinction. The, the ship and the crew are part of the nuclear machine that run that plant. And that plant is the heart and soul of that submarine sure it allows us to do all the magical things we do and sometime later in your career you you start recognizing that naval reactors the institution the the institution that trained us the one that rick over started uh becomes less of your frenemy and more of your friend it is becomes your your backdrop you can call them from sea anytime anywhere in the world and they're there for you but we all are brought up under these and there's leadership lessons in this Mm -hmm. Under what we call the Rickover Principles. You know, he was non negotiable about these. There's 15 of them. I won't go through them all. But there are a lot of them, as you can imagine, about absolute accountability. And if you are confused at all about accountability, then no one's accountable. And accountability can only rest with one individual, and that's drilled into us. Now, you can share the accountability, meaning you're a department head or you're a division officer, but at the end of the day, the commanding officer is the account- accountable officer for the, the safety and success of that, of that submarine. And we're taught that from day one. You know, there's a lot of myths and legends about the nuclear power community, but, you know, after my exposure to, you know, the, the Navy writ large, there's just a lot of translatable, you know, lessons we are taught early on in the nuclear power community that I think are valuable for everybody. And, you know, we also have an outside look later in our careers that is, I I always found was very interesting because all our commanding officers of aircraft carriers are aviators that much later in life have to go through the exact same nuclear power training program. Right. So these poor guys at the 05 level are going through nuclear power school, nuclear prototype training with a bunch of ensigns going through. And almost without exception, the feedback is... You know, it's the best thing that ever happened to me, the way this program is run, the values, the support, and, uh, and the accountability are exactly, I think, what every officer wants at that, at that level. So, you know, when I, as I look back on it now, I find it to be a fascinating journey. When you're living at one, you know, as we say, you know, the, the next bite of the six-foot shit sandwich that, you, right. that we call nuclear power. But at some point, you kind of kick back and think, I wouldn't have it any other way. I mean, when you're a commanding officer of a submarine, you feel absolutely prepared technically for what you're endeavoring. You're grateful at that point that you know what you know and that it was injected into you, albeit, you know, often uncomfortably. But that's just that's just the way we are because the stakes are very, very high. Every reactor plant, every submarine influences every other reactor plant out there. So if you, you know, as Rickover said, we, we will have the opportunity to screw this up exactly one time because of the public fear and superstition of nuclear power as we go through. So that just drives a lot of behaviors that may be unique to us. I I don't know the other communities to that level. But for instance, mistakes in our community are celebrated, you know, unless it's deliberate. And we've had those, but you handle those a little bit differently. You got a different issue there. But the technology is so hard and takes so many people and there's so many moving parts that mistakes are made all the time. You just learn to bend these mistakes and then you, you celebrate them. If you continue to make the same mistake, yeah, that's going to matriculate in different ways and that'll eventually affect your performance.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: But we have a very rigid, you know, non-attributable review system. We call it the incident reporting system that at the end of the day is uh, has one objective to figure out what happened and then to correct it and then to move on. If it was a human error, you're likely to get disqualified and you're going to get re-qualified there because they'll put you through a training program because your lack of knowledge created an issue. But it never shows up in your fear rep by design. Oh, really? It just doesn't, uh, unless you have a lot of them. And then that probably manifests And hey, you're just not cut out for this work. But it won't go item by item, you know, the officer made this mistake, made this mistake, made this mistake. It'll be more of a grading that, hey, your performance is just below your peers. And at some point, you know, you're going to have to take the off ramp. If you had it any other way, it'd be almost impossible to get the ground truth on an incident, especially when it happens at sea and, you know, you're with the team you have. You right. operate independently. So that commanding officer has to be very confident that you have resolved the issue. You know what the problems are. Uh, you go through the upgrade program, you get everybody back on the
0: watch, and you get on with your day. Yeah, I think there's a huge leadership lesson there for listeners. A couple of past episodes, definitely listen to Vice Admiral Ron Boxel, where he talks about how his the command climate was impacted by a screaming commanding officer all the time. So w- with, once the CO starts screaming, nobody brings him problems anymore. And I and I would imagine the submarine community that could be absolutely catastrophic. And also, if anybody's interested in a little bit more about aircraft carrier commanding officers going through nuclear power school listen to um admiral james sandy winnefeld's episode where he talks about how he had to go through nuclear power school as, a, as an aviator so i'm sure you know him but
1: yeah i know him and you know you having an iq off the chart certainly helps uh especially when you go through <laughs> that point in your career but the aviation community really does send us their best you know that they're a large community they can be very selective and they uh and they do we have never given it a second thought, an aviator going through, at least I haven't, I'm sure others have. I mean, there's, there's, there's probably some element of ownership, but being the, the Naval reactors PCO instructor, I came across a lot of these guys and just super impressed and they perform extremely well at sea and they're just a good, good bunch. I think there's a lot of similarities on how we, we approach bad days uh, in the aviation community, in mm-hmm. the nuclear power community. So I think it's a very natural fit when they, when they come over and, and start the, uh, the pipeline. But you mentioned yelling CEOs, and my first CEO was that. And it, it does have a huge shutdown effect. But at that point, the department heads, you know, they've already been into the program for at least 10 years, eight to 10 years when they, when they get on board. And then you have an XO. I have never seen that affect them. They still drill through it. Okay. Because they understand. They've been in the program long enough to understand. Had, uh, yeah, I, I got a, a a very emotional CO uh, or worse, an inconsistent CO. You know, there's yelling and then there's inconsistent. If he yells consistently, you all learn to adapt and understand. All right, that's just the way the guy communicates. I can live with that. It's the not knowing what you're going to get is, I think, a much harder leadership challenge. And that's kind of what we had with our first skipper. And I you know, I wasn't senior enough to realize it at the time. But shortly after that, when I was looking back on that tour, you know, what a brilliant job the department heads did to set up that demarcation between the JOs and the command suite. They were the buffer. They were the buffer. They were absolutely committed to make sure the JOs didn't have to deal with that. And I would say the department heads probably saved that wardrobe uh, going forward. Now, you know, that CEO eventually left and then in came... The best CEO I've ever had. Okay. And boy, he had his hands full because, you know, we all were armored up. You know, we, we <laughs> yeah, you know, we, for a lot of us as JOs, we only had one CEO. For all, for all we knew, they were all like that. Uh, until we got, you know, my second CEO, who was probably not uh, as tactically proficient as the first guy, but he created a team environment that the entire team, you know, was able to absorb any kind of tactical issues that we had to f- fall in where previously it was all the co he drove the ship whenever there's a tactical problem uh, he made all the calls no no watch team backup no team concept where the second one set a completely different environment about hey i don't know all the answers we are going to feed off each other for every issue that that comes along and that's the lesson that just carried me through my entire career of building the team I actually listened to Ron. Ron's a good friend of mine, Ron Boxall. We just actually just played golf a couple of days ago.
0: Is his game getting any better?
1: Uh, yeah. All right. Yeah. yeah. All right. Well, good we were you, actually, uh, I don't think either one of us were impressing each other, <laughs> okay. um, but, it's, you know, it's just a, a lot of fun uh, to be with him and to, and to play golf with him. But I did listen to his podcast and, you know, there was nothing I wasn't completely aligned with, uh, but you mentioned, you know, his, you know, he would ask you know, the subordinates, hey, do you agree with that? Do you, mm. you know, what do you think? And whether or not you can matriculate that kind of behavior down to junior officers. And, and I will tell you, I think it's more powerful as a junior officer than it is as a commanding officer. Because when a commanding officer asks questions, you're going to get answers. Right. And it may be complicit answers because they just don't know, they don't know what the response is going to be from there. So if you build this tendency early, and what I'm really saying is you have to be comfortable asking questions uh, and getting feedback. And I, you know, grew up in an environment where the chief petty officers raised me and, uh, and I was just constantly asking questions. And they're the ones that got me qualified. They're the ones that got me through them and the, and the other JOs, and, you know, very much a, a community effort. But I really tried to instill, and I didn't do this as well as is when I became a major commander, I used to ride my boats and my squadron. There were a couple of CEOs that did this extremely well that understanding the power of soliciting input from your team is something you have to practice all the time. And you have to practice it ahead of need. It can't be in, in the crisis of the moment. And with this one CEO, he was the 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 skipper of the USS Dallas, you know, the one of the famed hunt for Red October. He would build scenarios where he needed input from his junior officers, and he would say, or he would feign that, hey, I don't know what the answer is here. I need input from the team. So he'd just kind of go around. We'd all meet at the navigation plot in our control room. And be at department heads or wherever he was, you know, kind of targeting, he would say, hey, our, uh, what do you recommend we do? What do we recommend we do? So say Dave here gives us gives him an input. And he had a tremendous sense of, you know, the level of thoughtfulness that went into your input. And he may just pick your input, whether he agree with it or not, to huh. see how you do with your input. Oh, wow. And okay. what he was doing, though, he was training the officers below him. When I ask you for input, it's not a casual question. You have to assume I'm asking, it's a sincere question. I mean, I don't know the answer. Right. And and this happened to me when I was in command. I was in a few scenarios where I did not know what to do. So I asked the team and having invested in this earlier, were the teams comfortable with giving me input as the commanding officer? I would often tell them and they knew how I thought. That I I may not know the answer, but I know the answer when I hear it. So if that smart Jo who's been with me for a while, we've been in these dialogues, and he's comfortable having this dialogue with me, you know, bingo. That's what we're going to do. And it just then that resonates with my experience. That resonates with the scenario. I didn't come up with it. You did. We're going to execute it, and you own it. So that was the other element of it. <laughs> right. you, you had to plan it, and you're now the officer in charge of that. You know bad idea, you know, whatever, whatever it may be. But the key here is uh, you can train that behavior and it just has to be part of your lifestyle. It has to be a day-to-day event where you're constantly seeking feedback from your team, where they understand that this is not a crucible event. This is not a crucible moment. This is the way we do business in this command. And we are drawing from the brain trust of the entire command from the petty officers all the way up to the commanding officer. It doesn't mean the whole boat is involved in every decision, you know, he he would, and I would, and most of us who grew up under that, you know the players to call in uh, to provide the input depending on what the issue was. Yeah. And you'll find in the end of the day, you get the quickest and most efficient solutions if the team is in the habit of being part of that dialogue.
0: I run my own company. I'm sitting here listening to you say that and I'm thinking of five ways I could do that better myself. Uh, oh, we all can. Yeah. We all can. That's I thought true. I had it can. <laughs> and then I become
1: a Commodore and I'm riding my other boats. I'm like, man, I wish I, you know, I, that guy
0: crushes me on how right.
1: he did it. Yeah. And I will tell you there, there is, you know, an, a, an at sea couple, well, I have many at sea stories where this manifested, but when you do that, you start recognizing that you are really, you really are the smartest guy on board, you know, just on a you know, if, if you used a normalized plane, you have to be almost in every case because you have so much more experience, experience than anybody right. else. And what the CEO of the Dallas did very well, and I have my own story after I kind of give this setup, he recognized, you know, his boundaries, his right and left boundaries were much wider than a newly qualified you know, attack submarine officer of the deck. who was, was just low to stray from any procedure at all. So he would put them in positions where they had to make very hard decisions and uh, understanding that, you know, they thought they were doing something unsafe, but his boundaries were so much wider and he understood the boat so much better. And, and these are high performance machines. I mean, uh, like a Los Angeles class, like an underwater Ferrari, and it can get away from you. And we've had instances of that where we've almost lost boats just out of the performance and the, the, the proficiency issues with the crew. So he would, you know, let the the officer, you know, bang through something, and then he would kind of saddle up next to him and say, "How'd you like that?" He's, "Oh, I didn't like that at all." Yeah, so let's talk about that. Right, right. <laughs> and he would uh, he would walk them through that. So I had adopted that before I became commodore. Again, this guy did it better than I did, but I allowed the JOs to really just drive the boat. When they got too rigid, I would go up and kind of hip check them a little bit on, hey, I haven't felt the boat move in a while. You know, don't be a potted plant up here. So for a submarine, you have to be constantly changing course and maneuvering because we do everything passively. So you have to create the relative motion to get different bearing rates to contacts to, to identify where everybody is without revealing your position. So there's there's this constant dynamic of the boat has to be turning and maneuvering all the time. But then you have to balance that with actually getting to where you're going. So it, there's an art to it all the time. When the, Right, it's not like a ship that just goes in a straight line don't go from straight San line. Diego to Hawaii. Uh, yeah. Now, if we're going at high speed, we may do that just knowing nobody's going as fast as we are. So, you know, everything's in front of you, uh, not yeah. behind you. But whenever you uh, slow down, and we have to come up close to the surface every 12 hours to contact the rest of the world, see what's going on. But other than that, we're deep and and, uh, and running. And the JOs love that. And what we learned is this is, you know, this is the crucible learning environment where they are not just legally my direct representative as the officer deck of the boat. They are actually learning the boat. So we go up to do this mission. And when we're on mission, I typically am in the control room a lot Mm -hmm. and they want me in the control room a lot. That's where my experience becomes an integral part of the team. I may not say anything. I may just be listening. I may be an active participant. It just Depends on how dynamic the mission is and what the mission's doing. And
0: the control room is the bridge. The bridge, that's, okay. yeah.
1: uh, So we actually have a bridge and a control room. Our bridge is at the top of our sail. sail. Okay. And that's only manned when we're on the surface. And we're only on the surface entering and leaving port. So the nerve center really is the control room, which is right at the bottom Got of it. the ladder of the bridge. Okay. And, but there's two, you know, watertight hatches between you and the ocean at that point. So you're sitting in the control room. It's still a, a pretty cramped space. So we go through this. We'd been through it many times. But this one occasion, we roll off station, and I continued to hang out on the bridge. And the GOs didn't like that because it was kind of like, hey, Captain, we understand why you're here on the mission. We want you there on the mission. But we want the boat back now. Right. You know, we don't want you up here. And uh, so a little bit of an ego blow. But what's interesting is how I learned this. So we used to do these things every evening. I I think a lot of people use this term, this fireside chat. Mm Mm-hmm. So we'd have the evening meal, play a few rounds of cribbage, big game on submarines, and then we would have fireside chat. Typically happened at 1,900 at night. And it was completely voluntary. Sometimes nobody showed up. Sometimes a few guys would show up And different. Depends on who, what was on your mind. That's your, that's your free, non-attributable access to the captain. Okay. And I just sat there and did paperwork. Nobody showed up. But I was not in my stateroom. I was in the wardroom, and uh, it was coming through. So I come down one day. And the XO meets me in the passageway outside the wardroom. He tells me, hey, Captain, everybody's in there. I think you're in
0: trouble. <laughs> this is the XO this side of The XO. Okay.
1: <laughs> so I get in there, and our wardrooms aren't very big. So I'm, like, you know, leaning against the wall trying to get to my seat. And, you know, a lot of stern faces in there. And, you know, we, we had our uh, kind of our stronger personality JOs. So I get into my seat, and I say, okay, man, what's on your mind? And then they had their spokesman, you know, picked one you know, of our stronger JOs. And he just let me have it. And he just said, hey, Skipper, kind of sucks working for you now.
0: Oh, wow. Yeah. Okay.
1: Just well, like that, that.
0: That was my response. And uh, internally. And, uh, and then, all right, well, let's talk about that. Yeah, because right now my anxiety level is either like I totally admire that guy or I'm scared shitless for the end of the story. Yeah, yeah. <laughs>
1: yeah. Well, in the end, it's, you know, it was the best feedback of a healthy command, I think I got my entire tour, that it was uncomfortable for me at the time. But then he went through how they wanted the boat back and everything I just said. And then I looked at the XO and told him, I said, well, I can fix that right now. XO station, the CDO, call me if you need me. And, you know, and and instantaneously, we're back to business as usual. But here's the lesson here. Again, we invested in this ahead of time, so the the JOs were very comfortable bringing an issue to my attention because that's just the way we operated. Even though I didn't like it, and I probably showed I didn't like it, but that's just human nature. You, know, you think every CEO thinks they're the best CEO on the planet, and clearly I was not. And we we came through that. But when I talked to the XO later, I was like, man, thank goodness they felt comfortable in telling us this. Yeah, or they would have just languished and, and been unhappy. Now we may have come out of it eventually, but I prided myself. They went right after my singularly area where I was most proud of being a commanding officer is developing my JOs and I completely strayed. So as I was saying that, you know, the lesson here is, and this can start at a very young level is you have referent authority over anybody who is assigned to you and they are going to do what you say. And if they don't, you you may have other issues and it may, may feel cool at first, but it had better give you the uncomfortable feeling that you're giving orders to people that are a lot smarter than you and they know things. And if you don't tap into that, it's going to be very, very difficult to build this foundation of respect and teamwork that you, you come through. So, you know, the ability to have those dialogues early and make it comfortable on the team and not when you need it absolutely when you don't need it. Right. Uh, because when you need it, it becomes, you know, very common, very, you know, very familiar for the team to say, you know, CO's asking questions, like CO's always asking questions, the JO's asking questions, like the JO's always asking questions. And, and and maybe later I'll talk a little bit how we used to bring sailors on board my command, which was the USS Memphis, and, and how powerfully healthy it was driven by our, our chief petty officers, which really set the tone from day one, that you are part of this team. We've been expecting you, we're celebrating you,
0: and and this is how you're going to come into the, the Memphis fold. Wow. Very powerful by the Chiefs. Yeah, I, I would think, listening to that, I reflect back. I would think that if anybody listening to this, if you've got your subordinates, I'll just call them, because it could be officers or enlisted in both, if they're actually bringing you problems and saying something like, hey, it kind of sucks working for you now, I, I feel like, that's actually a compliment to you that they feel like they can bring that to you. It's the, it's the story that Admiral Boxel told where they're not bringing you those kind of things. Yeah. You probably should be worried where it's maybe natural to think the opposite. Like nobody's bringing me problems of doing a great job in command. Yeah. Maybe you're not. It's yeah. Kind of no, you're right. You're you're right. And, you know, and obviously it's
1: hugely dynamic. And a lot of these techniques that we're discussing, you know, it's important to understand there's no cookie cutter model. Right. You have to know your team. And techniques that work in one command may not work in another command. But what is always true is you are 100% reliant on your team. And if you ever stray from that, no matter what technique you use, you're setting yourself up. I I had a guy that worked for me on a shore duty, tremendous officer, went to command and was a tremendous officer there. But the power of his personality... In a good way, shut down his team. And he didn't recognize he was not getting feedback. And he had a collision. And all the data was there. And oh. only the team was so confident in their captain that even though what the captain was doing was inconsistent with the data they were seeing on their displays, their response was, Well, he's our captain. He must know what he's doing. Not that he's yelling at him. It was quite the opposite. Yeah. Uh, and maybe he could even be accused of being too familiar with his crew. I don't know. I wasn't there. But again, It's such a fragile thing that you have to tend to it every single day. You could have a few folks turn over in your command and the dynamic changes completely. And if you're not paying attention to that, uh, you may end up in the wardroom with a bunch of pissed off JOs explaining to you how it sucks working for you. Right. So I, I keep saying, Hey, the lesson here, the lesson here is we get off to something else. But the lesson here is you have to have trusted feedback loops. You know, in this case, you know, I, talk to the XO, say, XO, why didn't you tell me this? And the XO's response was, I didn't see it either. But thank yeah. goodness the JOs did, and they were our trusted feedback loop. I mean, not the guys I talk to every single day on feedback, other than, you know, as they're standing watch. but you can see that it just bred through the command. Right. You know, that the JOs re- ran their divisions this way because I ran the ship that way. The department heads ran their departments that way. That there was just constant dialogue throughout the boat at all levels an extremely powerful conversation mechanism and there's a lot of value in what I call the power of dialogue just having discussions all the time and I used to use this example on the power of dialogue when I was a commodore I'd walk walk to a boat when I'm underway with them and you know typically they'll we have a weekly field day where you, know, you rip up all the deck plates, you clean everything, um, and then you put it all together. And you know, Our submarines are like that. You can eat off them. <laughs> yeah. They're probably overly clean, but that's just the way we are. That's fine with me when you've got a nuclear
0: reactor under the
1: water. Yeah, exactly <laughs> right. Totally the same with us, that, right? believe it yeah. or not. We live with the thing. Right. So I would walk around and just kind of as a barometer sample, I would you know, ask a second or third class petty officer, somebody who has been on board for a while, and i say, hey, why are we field daying? And almost invariably the common answer I would get was because the chief of the boat said so, who's our senior enlisted on board, our Mm -hmm. uh, chief of the boat. Mm -hmm. And then, you know, that would be part of my dialogue with the commanding officer before I left the boat. Uh, I said, hey, you know, I was talking to your, it was all men back then. So I said, hey, I was talking to your boys and, and, you know, just the feedback I asked when when I got, when I asked a few questions. Say, hey, Skipper, you owe more than that. These are smart kids. And this is just a great example. Why do we clean the boat? I'll say, well, we clean the boat because that's how we find efficiencies, because we live here. Uh, you know, you make something up. It doesn't matter. You're trying, to, you're trying to have a dialogue. Similarly, the way we talk on our sound power phones, our internal communications circuit, I will be looking right at you, Dave, and I'll give you an order. And I demand that you say that order back to me exactly the way I said it. Right. And if you don't, I'm going to correct you. So we're doing drills, and the, the crew—it's where, where are some? Especially when you're new, you get into the habit of it after a while. But I would ask after a drill, "Hey, why do we talk like dorks on on a sound power phone when I'm looking right at you? Why do I have to repeat everything back?" And some knew the answer, some didn't. And the answer is because these procedures are written in blood and I'm not practicing for a drill. I'm practicing like a hydraulic rupture where your eardrums are splitting because it's so loud. I'm practicing for the bad day. I'm practicing for when I can only hear every other word that you're saying. But we've done it so many times. I know exactly what you're saying. Right. We can execute and we can save the boat. So this whole mentality of, you know, everything we do, we do for a purpose. And that should be the basis of your dialogue, explain to your team. Doesn't mean they're going to like cleaning the ship, but at least they understand why we're cleaning the ship. And that changes the whole mentality of how your team underneath you is approaching their day-to-day business. We're not doing this just to make the cop happy. We're not doing this just because the CEO said so. We're doing this because this is a procedure we have done over and over and over, and it saves us. And it's part of our foundation as safe submariners and you can tell the boats that do it almost immediately when you walk on board you know, who owns their boat and who is just putting up with their boat and the ones you're putting up with i gotta tell you i pay a lot more attention when i'm at sea because i may be the guy that has to step in you know just
0: incredible dynamics of small teams as you uh you know as you kind of bang through this pipeline right when you look back on your career, and you can pick any any window of time that you were at sea on a boat, or, or not, it could be short duty too, but can you recall the the very first time you did something wrong and, and how it was handled by your command, your commanding officer or the command?
1: Yeah. No, I can't, actually, because I was doing things wrong every day. <laughs> okay. I mean, it was just, it was a constant feedback loop. They used to actually have a chart in the wardroom, room, you know, what MERS learned today. <laughs> okay. And they would fill it in. And I was no different than other JOs. I wasn't the only JO listed on that thing. But it's tremendous entertainment training JOs. You know, as you get older, you kind of look back at the JOs, man. You just got to keep, like golden retrievers, man. You just got to keep their tails wagging. Yeah. And keep them heading down range. Because it is an environment you're learning from mistakes all the, all the time. And that constant feedback we just discussed on the, the upgrade now, I had some bad days, you know, but typically they were when I became that super smart J.O. And, you know, you're fully qualified. You're part of the heartbeat of the boat. You are mm-hmm. you know, 100% off of the deck and you're responsible for stuff. And then you start getting into, I know better. You know, why can't we do it this way? And we get forward. So on this one one particular evening, you know, absolutely unsafe driving of the boat which I didn't fully appreciate. And if we get a chance to talk about my command tour on NR-1, the deep submergence, you know, this is where this lesson completely crystallized for me that happened you know,
0: 10 years prior. And NR-1, real quick explanation to the, uh, the Marines out there. Yeah,
1: NR-1 <laughs> is, was our one and only 04 command in the community. And it was a nuclear-powered deep submersible. So it's, uh, it's a Cold War
0: tool. Still around?
1: Nope. It okay. was uh, uh, inactivated about uh, five or six years ago. There were about four commanders after I was the commander of it. And it's, you know, it spends its life on the bottom of the ocean picking through people's trash. So you can kind of use your imagination on on what it was used for because you're going to have to use your imagination. Sure. But there was one crucible event that happened on, on, on board that's similar to this, you know, J.O. story I'm telling where I was having fun with the boat and I was driving directly under ships at high speed. Uh, and it does very cool things to our displays because everything's sound and digitized. So as you approach a, another ship at close range, you're we, what we call the displays blow up and you okay. get all kind of crazy stuff. And, uh, and I was actually teaching a, a younger J O on this thing we call near field effect on the, uh, on the sensors. Well, my CEO was not amused. And, you know, after, after I was disqualified and not really understanding why, he brought me in and said, and this is my CEO that I admire immensely, the one who actually taught me about the power of dialogue. He sat me down. This is back on the Dallas. No, not NR one. No, this is back on the on the my first boat. I was first never boat. on the Dallas. Uh, oh. Dallas was a boat in my squadron. I was okay. on. This is the USS Haddo. Okay,
0: my very first boat. Okay, so you said NR one, but that's not. You're back on. it. Yeah. Okay. So
1: yeah, two different stories, uh, about ten years apart. The first one happened on the Haddo, and a, a a crucible incident happened on NR one that showed why the incident on okay. the Haddo was so out. dangerous. So, if you uh so the, the basic issue with me driving under the sub these surface ships was the the c o was pretty much coming after me that you don't have absolute certainty what kind of ship that is. If it was a merchant ship, great, if it was a warship, yeah, no problem. but if it's a trawler, you put everybody in this boat at risk because we assume the trawlers own the water column all the way to the bottom of the ocean, and it's often they do, which happened to me on nR1, which i'll tell here in a second if you'll okay. indulge me yes, please. so his issue was you're not that smart, you have a lot to learn, and because of your your ego, uh, you put us all in danger and so so he put me through an upgrade program and, and again, this just like in the reactor plant it's exactly what it is an upgrade program, unless you refuse to learn, then it's a performance issue oh okay, uh, but the way he looked at it was, hey, you know this is a young j o uh, he wanted this. He wants this freewheeling, you know, driving the boat on the con, but he understood that, hey, there's, there could be a cost to that. And if you exceed his threshold, you're going to get more than just feedback. You're going to get disqualified. And, you, and, and just getting disqualified is more than enough to correct an officer on an SSN because you come off the watch bill and you have just burdened the entire, somebody has to fill in for you. you know, it's typically a tight rotation anyway. Uh, so you're working hard to get back on that. On that watch bill, and typically you have to give training to the wardroom. It's a very constructive requalification. So yeah, you, the purpose of the requalification in, in the CEO's eyes, which I carried through my career, is through you we are going to elevate the knowledge of the wardroom. So you had to go do research, you had to give training, you had to come up with scenarios. Very involved, took a lot of hours. And then if he's satisfied, you put enough into it, did enough push-ups, then I'll put you back on the watch bill. And it's okay. just him. I mean, there's no lengthy, multifaceted certification event. You're pleasing the man. And when the man's ready to put you back on the watch bill, you go back on the watch bill. Okay. So fast forward to NR1, and there's so many lessons on NR1. And I know you have a question in here about if you could do, you know, do a redo. Yeah. It's probably this whole NR1 tour because I was a brand new, it, it, as fun as it was and as successful as it was, it, again, so many mistakes early as a new commanding officer, orbiting around everywhere from, you know, a one-of-a-kind plant. My technical knowledge was low. I was very much influenced by a very smart crew, not always constructively. And, you know, I learned very quickly and got out of that and became myself again. But it's just a very, very unique environment. It's a, so just to explain what NR-1 is, you know, I said physically what it is. It's the only command where every enlisted office, every enlisted member also has to interview with the four star, the director of Naval Reactors. Every officer does coming into the program. Okay. But for that particular boat, because there's such little team backup, we only have 10 on board at a time and it's a nuclear power plant, same responsibilities, just smaller. Every one of those enlisted members have to pass an interview, same as the officers uh, going through nuclear power. So you're dealing with a small crew, and almost every one of them gets picked up for an officer program. Uh, So it's very actually hard (laughs) to maintain consistency in your command because they're constantly getting poached to the officer community. Right. But, you know, by this time I had already uh, was very comfortable with the way I approach preparing ships, you know, this whole power of dialogue, this whole constant feedback from the team that on this one day, in the Mediterranean, and we're not in the Mediterranean much, but we were we were on this particular deployment, and we were supporting a torpedo exercise. We almost always do torpedo exercises on instrumented ranges, either off of Hawaii, San Diego, Norfolk, or uh, or Autec down in the Caribbean. If you ever do one off an instrumented range, you have to have a platform. On scene, they can pick up an exercise torpedo that sinks. They're designed to float, but if they don't float, you have to go pick it up because they're just laced with technology. Mm-hmm. So I was that guy. So I'm sitting on the bottom of the ocean and uh, this was the USS Philadelphia was doing a torpedo exercise above me. So we're about 3000 feet underwater, just sitting on the bottom, eating Pop-Tarts and <laughs> just listening to what's going on above us because you can hear everything. And then they recovered all the torpedoes and they, they called me and told me that um, I'm pretty go. We lift off the bottom and we start twisting the ship. It's, it's got thrusters all over it. You can move in any, any dimension. And the ship stopped responding to command and to physically wouldn't respond to command. So we turned on the external cameras. We had 13 of them and over a million watts of lights. So we just kind of illuminate everything. So we take a look around the boat only to see trawler nets sliding down the side of the boat and get sucked into our starboard screw. Oh, so when you rewind back to the USS Haddo when I got disqualified because you don't know if it's a trawler or not. Here I am at 3,000 feet underwater and the nets are going all the way down to the bottom. And he was just drift fishing. So I didn't hear him. He certainly didn't hear me. But once he snagged me, we heard him start up. And then he started going, uh, which spun us around and started dragging us backwards along the bottom. And we're smashing on the bottom. We had equipment falling off the boat. And we have this procedure where you emergency blow. You inject high pressure air into your ballast tanks. Which we did, just to get ourselves away from the ocean floor. Uh, and then we had to fight the ship all the way back up, up to the surface without damaging us or coming up underneath the trawler and damaging the trawler. This was shortly after the USS Greenville collided with the Japanese fishing boat off of Hawaii and killed a bunch of people, damaged the boat. Uh, so the whole community was kind of, you know, a little bit ionized over submarines coming up under, under ships. So at the end of the day, you know, we we got to the surface and uh, we cut away all the nets and some funny stories about how the skipper of the trawler and I were communicating back well, and I was forth. was uh, uh, aggressively. aggressively. Yeah, <laughs> right. Hey,
0: he didn't speak look, we much English. a submarine,
1: right? Yeah. yeah, he didn't speak much English. I didn't speak Italian, but the hand, the verbal commu- the nonverbal communications were pretty clear that neither one of us were happy. But the reality was we were both in international water and we were both where we were allowed to be. It's just an unfortunate incident. So at the end of the day. Nobody got hurt, and we replaced, you know, the guy's nets for him. The U.S. Navy did. But the lessons were were surreal because not just, you know, the lesson here isn't necessarily that the trawlers own the water column. I mean, every submariner is, you know, brought up that way. The lesson here is that I think every officer in combat or in a crisis, if you have properly prepared your team, you have this what you call kind of an out-of-body experience where your team just goes into action. And you're in the enviable position of just watching them and it elevates you to a position where you can provide forceful backup if you need to and this is an entire enlisted crew except for the pilot which was we call him a pilot on there because we actually fly by altitude off the ocean floor uh so all our sensors are kind of looking down but everybody else is enlisted and watching that team we lost the reactor plant we had a chief on watch at the time that he was able to quickly on his own because there's no watchstanders out there. He got that reactor plant back up, mm-hmm. got power back, got propulsion back, and allowed us to keep the tension on the nets to make sure that we didn't, you know, crash into the the boat above us. And I, I would tell that story a lot afterwards on, you know, again, not that I hope any of you have a day like this because, you know, those are literally guys I keep in touch with to this day because we know that, you know, we're all here because we were able to work together as a team that if you need any convincing at all, the power of doing this ahead of need and making it part of your, as I said earlier, lifestyle, these are the kind of days you're going to have. I don't care where you are in the military, what community, what profession, you're going to have a bad day. And, and we used to feed this back to the pre-commanding officers that, hey, it's easy to be a good CEO on a good day. <laughs> yeah. It's the bad days that are going to define you as a commanding officer and how, how well you perform in those kind of scenarios. And there are so many of them in in our community that happen so often that you find out early those who are going to you know continue to go on and command a submarine and most folks self deselect at some point that are not up for that they just never get comfortable with uh with with that kind of dynamic environment
0: right i usually ask this question somewhere along the line to tell me about a time where you were really truly scared what was that it or do you have another one um, well, many. Does that sounds <laughs> that sounds scary to me. You know. Yeah, it was. It, well, interestingly,
1: it wasn't necessarily scary in the moment. It was in the bar afterwards. You know, actually, a week later when we pulled into Greece, uh, we're all kind of reflecting back on how it could have turned out, how it probably should have turned out, and that a few things went went our way on the bottom of the ocean that we were able to, as we you know, kind of unscrew ourselves and get mm-hmm. up there that's when the fear kind of sets in retroactively. If you're well-trained and you, and you go into action, it, you know, again, you have this surreal external look at what's going on, you just execute. And it's when you, your heart rate comes down and you start thinking. And this is, I mean, this is actually documented even for Marines in combat where the real problems start after the combat. Uh, yeah. When you start thinking about what you just went through and whether or not you ever want to go do that again. And so we actually went through each crew member we, had to, we have what we call undersea medical officers. They're kind of like our versions of flight surgeons and everything else. But they're specifically trained for all the dynamics of being underwater physically and, and, and mentally. So every crew member had to get counseling and we had to kind of go through all this. We had two midshipmen on board. They were doing their midshipmen cruise. Uh,
0: on NR1? On NR1 when this one happened. When oh, the, wow. What were they, like with, number one and two in the class to get that gig? For uh, I don't know. <laughs> I didn't ask, but I'm pretty sure after that day we lost them to another community. <laughs> <laughs> the supply Corps. Yeah, yeah, so
1: these poor kids. So when we're within the proximity of the bottom on NR1, we actually uh, uncover these three steel plates to reveal three windows. And they're on the bottom of the boat, and you have two watch standards that are lay on the bottom, underneath the deck plates. You put them in there, they're on a mattress, you close the deck plates, and they're look, their job is just to look out the windows and they're mic'd up with the pilot. So the pilot has all his cameras, but he has no window. So okay. he's, you know, he's moving around and he has, you know, typically very good situational awareness, but he can't see directly under the boat and he can't see when we're landing. So the watchstanders are trained to kind of count down. before. So the, the boat has like an inline skate, It has retractable landing gear. And the wheels come down, they're full of alcohol. If they're full of air, they would you know, Burst, collapse right? yeah. or they would or collapse. Right. The, the, the outside of the pressure, pressure yeah, so, right? would, would compress the air. So they're full of alcohol to keep them inflated. And they, and they would call the landing. So these kids were down there when the boat got spun around and started, you know, track, drag backwards along the bottom. So the boat is smashing into them. And they, one guy, you know, cracked his head on the window. And I think they both wet their pants totally expected yeah but you have to write another thing about nuclear power is when you're a commanding officer of a of a submarine or an aircraft carrier you have to write the director the four star a letter every quarter and it's a little bit formatted but it you know it talks about your training program your material issues and if you need any help and if, if you have midshipmen on board you have to comment on how the midshipmen experience went, because we're all recruiters you know we're all right. trying to get these kids mm-hmm. interested in your community and Admiral Bowman was the director at the time when I wrote him the letter. He actually called me when I got to Greece. He said, There aren't too many letters that make me laugh out loud. <laughs> when I explained what happened, he already knew what happened. He'd been briefed, because uh, it's the safety of a nu- nuclear reactor out of there that he's you know, concerned about. But when I, you know, kind of commented on how that experiment, experience landed on the midshipmen and that I, yeah, I think they were pretty shaken up. I think we lost them. <laughs> <laughs> did,
0: did you ever honestly find out what, what they went on to do? Or, you know, Dave, uh, I wish I had, I wish I had, stuff. I mean, they may have been
1: submariners for all I yeah, know, right? right? I mean, some guys, you know, they like that. Uh, and in the end of the day say, yeah, hey, this is, you know, if you were like me, when I came into submarines... Had no idea what these boats really did. Well, NR1 was still in that category at that time. Okay. I mean, nobody knew what NR1 did. We were very close on what she did militarily. You didn't have a Wikipedia page for it back then? No. Okay. <laughs> uh, probably do now, though. So we did we did a fair amount of commercial work with that. I did a lot of work with Bob Ballard. Uh, he and I are friends, and we used to— If he had worked in the vicinity where we were doing military ops— Uh, We'd try to carve out a few hours for him to go look at something, to go get some data. And he was on board a lot um, when we were there. So we we tried to support the science community and it kind of, you know, helped, you know, our cover story of, you know, it's a a research platform. But during my tour, I did mostly military work. I didn't have a, a few occasions with with Bob and some others, but
0: most of the time we were doing military work. So yeah, the poor midshipmen didn't. <laughs> yeah, that's, that's yeah, a great fair. story. Well, yeah. if any of those midshipmen hear that story, please drop me an yeah. email because I'd like to hear about that. But. So being scared, you asked me that, mm-hmm. I didn't really answer your question. So that was a, a retroactive
1: scare, but there were a couple where a couple poor decisions on my point put sailors in direct danger. And most of them were on NR1, but there were a few on some of the attack boats I was on, but the other one, when we had to put divers over the side a lot, sometimes open ocean, you know, sometimes protected, and I made a poor decision on the talent management of who I put over the side. And, okay. and this was a, a weak diver, a weak swimmer, and I actually watched on the cameras the boat came crashing down on him and knocked him unconscious underwater, and then the other divers were able to get him up and uh, resuscitate him. And if you're a scuba diver, you know the list of Things that can, can go wrong with an unconscious diver are immense, you know, all with bad endings. Um, but we were able to, I had a very strong corpsman on board who was, a, who was a deep sea diver, a personal deep sea diver. Matter of fact, he's kind of a legend in the community. He was the kind of first guy that did a lot of saturation diving and a lot of data driven that, that a lot of the commercial divers do now. So he knew exactly what he was doing. He was able to recover the guy and get him going. So the, there were a couple of those that you, you look at it and you just recognize, man, you do the best you can, but the sin is not to, to learn from each one of those events. Right. And when we did the critique, and you know, this is what nukes do, when, matter of fact, we critique good things as well as bad things. And this was always an entertaining topic when I would teach the PCOs, especially folks from outside our community that would go through the course, like uh, the CVN, aircraft carrier XOs and COs that, and I said, Hey, uh, you'll, you'll hear that we critique everything both good and bad. You know, we do a procedure and then we critique it. So that's not exactly true. I said, we would like to think we do that, but the reality is we don't have time for all that overhead. I said, but here's my advice to the new commanding officers. If something goes right unexpectedly (laughs) critique it. Yeah. Because here's the deal. You have to be right on purpose, not on accident, Um, because being right on accident is really a chance game that it's not going to go right the next time. So if you know you did something that you weren't really prepared for and it went better than expected or it went super well, you may want to sit down and talk about it and uh, and, and just milk it for every ounce of good feedback you can. I say, if you've done the same thing over and over and over again and it's going just as scripted, you know, Procedures for pulling into port, surfacing the submarine, submerging the submarine. You don't have to critique that. That's how you train them. Uh-huh. You're getting the exact feedback you need on how well it went. But when you do a one-off and you do a unique procedure, SEAL, SEAL team operations were always very sporty for us. We have a long relationship with the seals, goes all the way back to the interwar period. Yeah, I'll bet. Um, yeah. a lot of time on board, and we always love having them on board. Do we have, you? We have to carry extra food
0: on board; those B- kids eat a lot. Yeah. Uh, How much do they love being on board?
1: Uh, it's hit or miss. Yeah. Uh, you know, we try to keep them on board less than a week uh, okay, because their fitness will start being affected. We can work out on board, but you know, having enough volume of exercise equipment for—and I say a seal team—it's not a whole team; it's a platoon. You know, typically ten or twelve. Yeah. Will be on board. When you bring the SEALs and the submariners together, there's just missions we can do that nobody else can do. Yeah. And they recognize it. We recognize it. It's a lot of work for both sides. But at the end of the day, it's just one of those unique capabilities only the U.S. Navy can do. And uh, and we know it. And we have, a, I think, a very good relationship with the SEAL teams. You know, they are an extension of us when they're on board. They're either a sensor for us or a weapon system for us. And we kind of are very deliberate about those operations, but there's a lot of risk putting people deliberately outside
0: a submarine at sea. Yeah, i bet and, you that's the connection between your communities. Is that it, uh, underwater is underwater?
1: Yeah, <laughs> I mean underwater is underwater. Yeah. So but, when I was a JO, I, I didn't really expect to talk about the SEAL ops, but there's so many um, lessons you learn from these guys and how quickly something can go wrong. And we were doing a real world mission where we dropped them off, that went fine. And we prefer to do everything at night with the SEALs because we can typically surface the boat very quickly and we can move them much faster than having to lock out of a submarine, which means you put two guys in an escape trunk, shut the hatch, flood the hatch, open the other hatch, then they swim out. It's a very time-consuming event. So we have this recovery mechanism where it's a Fulton recovery, we call it. So what we'll do is... The seals are done. They have their small boats. They run a line between the small boats. We drive right between them with just our periscope sticking up, and you just catch them. We catch them, and then we turn the scope around. We see the two boats come together behind us, and then we'll drag them out to an area where we can service and get them on. Well, that's kind of cool on board. Yeah. Well, it's again, it's one of those procedures we practice a lot. Yeah,
0: very, I won't say it's routine, but somebody thought of it. Somebody said, hey, Skipper, I got an idea. Yeah. Well, what if we took these two boats and tied a <laughs> yeah. line between them and caught the sail? It's the classic. Hey, I got an idea. This is what we're <laughs> going to do. <laughs> right. And then the SEALs are out there. Watch, hold my beer, right? Yeah, yeah. hold my beer. And, uh,
1: and we, we have this thing on submarines called, you know, two negatives make a positive. You know, some kid gets a dumb idea, convinces his. Buddy, it's a good idea, and then two negatives make a positive, and the submarine's on the surface. <laughs> <funny. Yeah. laughs> so, this particular Fulton recovery, we uh, were dragging them and we dragged them right into the side of a small boat that didn't have its lights on. Uh, we ended up breaking the bones of one seal, and I, I can't get into the details of everything that happened, but the critique was pretty sporty. Yeah, on how did we get into that position where we put the seals in danger, and the seals were kind of. You know, they, they probably accept a level of danger day to day because unlike on a submarine where our procedures are pretty predictable, you know, the missions may not be, but we have, you know, the foundation of predictable procedures that we can typically apply that bring us to the, the end point where I think, you know, they train to a certain level and they have to think on their feet probably more than most communities because of the dynamics that they, they deal with. So the, the SEAL team lead at the time was a Lieutenant you know, just like I was. I mean, so you got two full bird lieutenants, you know, talking about this uh, after the critique. And he just commented on how hard our CEO was on us that we put the seals at risk. And, and I was like, that wasn't hard on us. I mean, that's, that's, that's our approach to business on how we critique. And uh, he made an interesting comment after that. He says, yeah, I'm taking notes on that. I see. Yeah, I think that's very powerful. I think we need to do more of that. I said, I think we take too much for granted that things just go wrong. When your CEO clearly thought that, yeah, things go wrong, but there's a lot of foundational stuff that we should have done better to make sure it didn't go that wrong. Right. Um, And he was all aboard about, hey, we never saw this guy coming and this and that. But at the end of the day, you know, only through the power of the critique and going step by step and figuring out what everybody did did he start unraveling some data that we had that indicated that we did know that guy was there only it was just a little nuanced and it you know it was a little bit higher level of uh of analysis that was required but his relentlessness to get to ground truth is is so ingrained in this community that to him it was just you know another day at the office he could have been eating a ham sandwich as he was doing this critique i'm sure you've read
0: david marquette's book Yeah. I, I read it to try to get a little bit more insight into your community and the leadership that takes place there. I know it's it's one data point, but that whole thing that he does about what do you intend to do? Yeah. I have started to unwind. Turn why, the ship around. His turn the ship he, around, right. Yeah, he, uh, Re- really great book. I really enjoyed it a lot. As a matter of fact, I'm going to reread it. It's one of those yeah. books I've taken a bunch of notes in.
1: Yeah. You know, Dave's book. We kind of applaud Dave for actually writing this stuff down. Mm-hmm. You know, we just grow up in it, live it, and then, you know, when it's over, it's over, you go on to other things and you hope you can apply uh, the nuclear mentality or the submarine mentality. Because We operate the boat the same way. It's not just the reactor plant. You can't have, you know, forward and aft standards. It's such a small crew. So whether you're nuclear trained or not, and about half the crew is nuclear trained or about a third of the crew is nuclear trained. And the rest are, are not. We have the torpedo men, we have the sonar men, we have the radio men, we have the auxiliary men. Good enlisted, very smart guys. They just didn't go through the nuclear program, but in, in a high-functioning ship, they all operate under the, the nuclear standard. There's a lot of comfort in that, and especially on integrity issues and, and yeah. on how we you know, approach our day.
0: Going back to your SEAL story, Can you recall a lesson that you learned from the Navy SEAL community? Because I would imagine that, you know, as submariners, they're, they're on your sub, it's your world, you're running it. But was there an opportunity there for you to learn something from them where you said, wow, I just really learned a valuable leadership lesson there and then reapplied it into your boat?
1: Yeah. Again, uh, lessons abound. I'm, uh, you know, I, I like to put myself in the category of being a lifetime learner. So mm-hmm. I'm, I find it fascinating to see how other people respond to an issue, to a crisis. And I'm o- always taking feedback. I find it fascinating just listening to you about how you ingrain your lessons into your civilian job, the company you started and, and running. So you are the commanding officer and, what we're talking about here is human nature. So it doesn't really matter whether you're in a a military environment or a civilian Mm -hmm. environment. Now the military may, you know, the definition of a crisis in the military, you know, might be slightly more life threatening, but you're in a money management business. You're, you are responsible for people's livelihood. And to me, you know, that's a lot of pressure and you got to get that right. And you better have a team that is focused on success, just like, like, like on a submarine. So the SEALs, We very much align with the SEALs. We very much align with the Marines. Matter of fact, the Marines have told me this. You know, I I spoke at a uh, couple of Marine Corps birthday balls and I've spoken at a Marine Corps foundation event in Okinawa uh, when I was living out there. And when they introduced me, they talked about the small team dynamic and how submarines are very similar to the dynamics that the Marines face in, you know, small team environments seals are the same way you know I, i'm not sure i was smart enough to pick up on the leadership lessons of that particular event but there was a, an event later on when i was a department head where we were just doing a training event with the seals and this was an event uh, It was off of norfolk and where the seals were they were kiloing out to our boats so we surfaced they would fast rope down to our boat and we would run at high speed, and I'll try to make this
0: short. It's kind of like Jack Ryan coming onto the Dallas back in the... Yeah, okay. and uh, <laughs> so
1: we would, we would go high speed and not going anywhere. We would just, after a certain amount of time, then we would surface and practice employing the SEALs on their small boats with motors. And then they would motor over to a destroyer and do it again. So we were just doing this daisy chain of evolutions, and it was all both platform and SEAL team training. And we were getting ready for uh, future deployment. And I'm the officer deck on the bridge, and when the, you know, the, this is a 53 coming over, so, you know, no communications happen when that kilo's over you because of the noise, so you get the boat on course, you know, the team below is kind of running the boat at that point because you're useless on the bridge to the noise. They fast rope down. Most of the seals go below decks and a couple of seals. We put Jacob's ladders over the side of the sail. They come up with the fuel bags for the, for the motors, for the small boats. We can't keep the fuel below decks. Makes a lot of of hazard reasons. So we, we put them in the free flood area and just tie them off as we go. So by the time the helo takes off, I look down and my A division chief and my and this SEAL team chief are an inch apart, screaming at each other. And these are both huge men. My money probably would have been on the SEAL, but I'm not sure. This was a you know a, a tough kid from Philadelphia that had a certain opinions about how the fuel bags should be tied to the free flood area inside the boat. And he's telling the SEAL or trying to tell him that his, you know these clamshells are going to stay open. It's going to be very violent up here. And he had his white line, and the SEAL had his parachute cord. Oh, yeah. Okay. And they were arguing over what type of line to tie down the fuel bag. So, me, the pea shooter, drops in between them, get, separates them, and, and I told my chief that, hey, this is their deal. Let them tie it down. So, we drop down. You know, we're going 30 plus knots for about 30 minutes, and we come back up. We're, I'm still on watch. So I'll go right back up to the bridge, you know, short time. No fuel bags. <laughs> They've been completely ripped out of the boat. So I'm calling down and say no fuel bags. And I didn't hear the ass chewing of the lieutenant in charge of the team to this chief. But apparently the feedback was it was epic. Everybody was taking notes. So because I'm up there and I see all the boats come up and they put the motors on and they start paddling because they don't have any fuel. Right. And I hear this same chief sitting in the back of the boat making engine noises. Oh boy. <laughs> and I hear the Lieutenant say, all of a sudden he goes, I want to go faster so that she makes higher pitched engine noises as they're all, all paddling. So apparently what went down on below decks was, and, and the reason my team was so impressed is how comfortable this Lieutenant was and, you know, very direct. There are, there is a time for direct feedback to your team when things do not go as planned for dumb reasons. And this clearly qualified. Right. Especially in this lieutenant. And he was a very senior lieutenant. I mean, this guy had been around the block many times. The most experienced kid in the in the team, uh, no doubt. So he had this, and, and apparently this lieutenant was about my size, and this chief was, like, towering over him like he was towering over me. And he had him backed up against the bulkhead and just... From top to bottom. I think he started with the Chief's Heritage all the way down to, uh, oh, wow. And he said, uh, he kind of ended it with, when a sailor tells you how to tie a knot, you listen to him. Sailors tie knots. We don't tie knots. (laughs) (laughs) He says, the mission's going to continue, except you. You're going to sit in the back and make engine noises, which explained why I, I heard what I heard when they went paddling off. And the team was, they were just very impressed and how well the chief responded from this, you know, a little ridicule in the end there, but I think that's part of the camaraderie of the team that, you know, I, I suspect this is not the first time something like that had happened.
0: I have a funny feeling that those seals on that, uh, those rubber boats paddling away probably still tell that story over beers. Yeah, they probably do. Yeah. Uh, They'll tell
1: you that, you know, that kind of stuff doesn't happen
0: every day to them.
1: I mean, they, they are
0: very proud.
1: They're very professional. They practice, they train, they repeat until dead. So they get it right
0: or as right as they can. Right. So that was not a great day for them either. I'm wondering, you know, there's this, I classify it as being the huge difference between battlefield courage and moral courage. And and I'm wondering if there was ever a moment in your career where you may have even risked your career with a decision that required some moral courage. Do you have a story about that or an experience? Yeah, you know, I, I saw
1: that, I heard Ron
0: comment on that in his podcast. That was a tough one for me. And I know you
1: gave me the option to remove questions. yeah. <laughs> But I, d- I decided that uh, I'm okay being uncomfortable with this question. My initial reaction was I don't see a difference between the two. And I was really fighting to come up with an example of, you know, my difference between moral and physical courage. I just feel like they're so intertwined with your psyche as a officer, as a, as a leader. And again, if you get, you know, in the habit of making hard decisions all the time. Don't, you know, I don't run from the flame. Don't be risk averse, you know, head on into these things. You, you not just get comfortable with it, you get good at it and you get very good understanding when, you know, this is kind of within your lane, you understand it, or I'm over my head. I need help. You know, the hardest decisions to make, especially as a leader is to tell your boss, I'm not doing that today. You know, I, I'm, uh, and, and in most cases, they're not asking you to do something you should not be ready to do. You know, I can fast forward. This is beyond the J.O. time. But as CEO of a submarine, uh, when the commander says, hey, I need you to cover this operation, you're certified. This boat fell out. You need to get in. And having to tell him, yeah, I'm not the boat. And, and there were a lot of reasons for that, mostly due to personal turnover. Yeah, I was certified, but not with this team. But the reality was... I had lost track that I was responsible to maintain that certification. Right. And because I didn't, and I didn't respond to the new personnel, I didn't put the effort in to bring them up to speed. And there were some critical billets. So I had to tell a Commodore no, and he was hundred percent supportive. But here's the thing. And you learn this as you go along that you can only do that a couple of times. Right. Cause you don't get paid not to do the mission and you got to know that as a leader. So like everything else, there's dynamics involved. There's you know, moving variables involved, but at the end of the day, we are paid to do the job. And, and that has to be your North Star. You know, I have come across officers who look forward to the opportunity to say no, to demonstrate that they're, they're courageously strong to say no. And I, you know, I applaud that to a point, but the reality is you got to understand that there are collateral effects to you not filling in when you need to fill in or performing when you need to perform. So the lesson there is, yeah, if you're not ready, you're not ready. And if the, and you can sit down and talk to your superior and we can have a whole discussion on risk, but risk is all about dialogue up and down the chain of command to understand your boss's risk tolerance, your, what risk you own, which risk he owns. And, and, and this was a great discussion out in seventh fleet. When I got into a couple of decisions that were made below me where they didn't own the risk, I owned the risk and we had to kind of recalibrate mm-hmm. on uh, you didn't give me the chance to drive down your risk. And I have a lot more resources than you do to drive down your risk. And, and, you know, if we have time, we can certainly pick at that. But in these uh, you know, particular cases of saying no, absolutely, you have to be convicted to say no. You are obligated to say no if you just feel like your team is not up to that task. But have that dialogue with your boss because your boss may be able to come back at you with a few things, a few options. Like, all right, how much time do you need? How many personnel do you need? Can I give you more resources to do this job? Can I delay the job? Can we change the job? Yeah. If you don't give them the opportunity via dialogue to work through it, then you're not doing your job. And, you know, I've been in scenarios where, yeah, no is okay, but you keep saying no, we have other issues. You're not preparing your team. Uh, I'm not asking you to do things that are not within the capability of your boat or your crew. So...
0: Yeah. It's, it's always a dialogue. <laughs> I don't know if that's what you're looking for in that. It is. No, that that's great because I think you're right. And every every officer, every leader, not even an officer, every leader will always be faced with a a scenario where they have to choose saying no. But the way you framed it was fantastic because it's about having that dialogue with your boss because they may introduce resources that allow you to say yes. And you're just not aware of them until you have that dialogue. And, and the other thing that you said too, it was really interesting was, I interpreted it as always know who owns the risk when you make a decision. Very valuable because I could probably keep you out of some hot water at, at the very least yeah, and it could keep people alive at the very best. But so.
1: similar to the previous discussions, you have to have that dialogue in advance. Mm-hmm. You know, in the moment, it's, it's not the time to start having a dialogue of who owns what risk. So the more senior commanders have got to drive those discussions. You have to carve out time to have training with your commanding officers on risk management. Yeah, and this was a very valuable and very learning, to, very much a learning piece for me when I was the 7th Fleet commander, when I'm dealing with a lot of different communities. And you talk about a, a rich learning environment on how different communities perceive risk. And, and no community is full of choir boys. Everybody is leaning forward, knifing their teeth. But how they define risk and, and, and making sure the commander understands their interpretation of risk takes a lot of work. Takes a lot of one on one conversation. And you can matriculate that down to within your own community that, you know, as a division officer, you have a lot to learn before you can be a department head. So it's almost like a different community at the department head level. Mm-hmm. And you have to have that constant discussion. So department heads are responsible for making sure the the JOs understand, you know, where is that risk spectrum between those two? And, the, and similarly, the department to the XOs and the CO and the CO to the Commodore, Commodore to the Admiral, and so on. Even the Seventh Fleet. I had a lot of discussions with my boss about what risk I own because I have a whole spectrum of missions in the largest AOR from the Indian Ocean to the East China Sea. You know, I have a U.N. security operation going up over here. I've got you know, freedom of navigation going down here, different platforms, different days, different communities. So the commander dialogue was typically always centered on some element of a risk discussion. That's how important it was to me to make sure that the guys on the field were absolutely comfortable with what I'm telling them to do, my understanding of what they can do. And then we proceed forward. And, you know, when you're a junior officer, and sometimes even up to a commanding officer, you don't necessarily appreciate where you fit into the larger machine yeah. of a fleet. So a fleet is run through the maritime operations center, which we call the mock. I had a particularly strong mock and we used to get questioned on you know, it's a fairly small team. How do they handle so much? Uh, well, it's through this dialogue. They don't handle so much. They handle what they need to handle and they delegate it down to the 10 task forces that are out running around the, the region. And it was very similar discussion. They would send out a task or a draft task or this is what we're going to ask you to do. You, know, you have 24 hours, to give us feedback. And typically the feedback would come in. Yeah, you know, cheerio, I, I got it, send the task board or and they felt very comfortable in doing this. And I said, hey, you know, you already had me tasked to do this. It's going to conflict with it. What's the priority? I'm like, oh, shit. Yeah. So, you know, you go redefine the priorities. Or the mock would look at it and said, all right, yeah, that's the priority. We'll task this to a different ship. And the, and the cycle starts starts over again. And then you get into this. Like, I can't do it. I don't have the, I'm not certified. I don't have the right training. And then the mock will start working it out. And if they, if they can't work it out, then they bring it to me. But I'm expecting it to be executed based on the ops brief. And if it can't be executed, they come and talk to me and I make a decision on whether, uh, you know, change the priorities, add more resources, cancel the mission, delay the mission. And, you know, that was typically my tool bag uh, as we go through it. And then once the task word's out, the mock's off to the next mission. And they don't expect any more feedback other than mission complete or, you know, something less than mission complete. Right. Because they're doing this, you know, all day, every day around the AOR. So you can see how these risk discussions starting early are very important to get comfortable talking about risk in context. Now, the elements of the risk, we can, we can talk about that all day, but that's very community specific. Mm-hmm. And that's where you rely on the community to understand their own personal risk um, when they're executing a mission. Your job is to roll it into the larger operation and figure out how that risk is going to be shared across the team.
0: Right, so. the, those components of risk are interesting because I deal with it in my civilian world too and I talk about it all the time. Where I oh, say Absolutely, it. yeah. There's, there are two, compo- two major components, my perspective, to risk. It's possibility and probability, yeah. right? And sometimes when, when people think about risk management, they focus on the possibility. And the possibility is, it's there, but the probability is very, very low, but we let that low probability drive risk-making because yeah. it's possible. Anyway. Yeah, exactly right. So. And then you have to balance that with the importance of the mission, Mm -hmm.
1: What else is dependent on that mission, which changes my my risk calculus. I am willing to take more risk up to and including losing a platform because the stakes are so high if we don't complete that mission. And those are the really uncomfortable decisions. But this is where when you get into a, you know, a multi-unit operation, you know, you just have to you know, recognize not everybody's going to be safe in this operation. Right. And and you drill a lot, you drill, really drill into how you can figure it out. But here's the real power of this dialogue. If you make it part of your routine, just like everything else we've spoken about, there are going to be days where that commander does not have time to talk to you. It's going down right now. Right. But based on all the previous dialogues, that commander has a good sense of where they sit in this spectrum and they make the right decision. Uh, and it could be as innocuous as, You know, your port clearance was just denied. There's no harbor pilot available. And this happens all the time in a lot of these countries that we're pulling in and out of. And the CEO has to make the call on, you know, whether or not, you know, the risk is acceptable to complete this, this mission. And I tell you, they get it right just about every time. Yeah. If you put the work in up front. Right. It's amazing how often they get it wrong if you've never had the discussion because they just have no sense for... Typically, it comes in, they have no sense for the top cover they actually have. That if you get this wrong, you know that I would have supported you. But instead, they just don't do it because they're afraid to get it wrong. Right. Uh, they don't have that sense of, you know, community that, hey, you know, the admiral knows that this could have happened and, and I'm going to execute it anyway. And I know he's got my back. And that's a, you know, that's, that's a lesson you can matriculate all the way down. I know you have some, I don't want to, you know, lead the, lead the witness yeah. here as the... Uh, you know, as the interrogator, <laughs> but you, uh, you had a question in there about, you know, how important it is for people to like you. Mm-hmm. And this is really hard at the jail level because you're coming into a command and I can, you know, this is where I can only kind of look through the lens of an attack submarine that, uh, you know, everybody's your age or older than you, right? I mean, you're an ensign, you're 25 years old, maybe 24 and, you know, half your division's older than you are. Most of them, if not all of them. Mm-hmm. So there's this, you know, age similarity that you like to do the same things and enjoy the same things. You spend a lot of time to, each, to get to know each other. But you have to understand the difference between liking and respecting. And that's really hard for JOs to kind of navigate through. And I will tell you, I've been asked this question before, and I often give the very unsatisfying answers. You're going to have to figure it out on your own. Mm-hmm. But know this, they don't need you as a drinking buddy. They have plenty of drinking buddies. They need you to take care of them. They need to know you have their back. If you do that, then the problem is solved. That's all they need. So does that matriculate into liking? Well, it can be perceived that way, but just make sure you understand, you know, I use the drinking buddy analogy because most people can kind of relate to that. Am I going to go out drinking with this guy or am I just going to be friendly with this guy? There's a huge difference. And you got to understand you're building a professional relationship above all else. And when you have to give an order, it's not going to be, you know, A friendly dialogue at that point. And you always have to maintain that distance. I'm not asking anybody to like it, but you just have to be sensitive to it because once you get through that JO tour, it becomes a lot easier to maintain that separation. Not always, but, you know, as you get more and more senior, you get more and more comfortable in your skin and you understand and you can see those nuances building uh, over time, but it's hard as a JO. And I fell into that trap like every
0: other JO uh, a number of times. (laughs) I think everyone does at some point sliver of their time yeah, and and i'm going to use my next comment as a segue into my next question for you but when i go back and i think about, i had both civilian and military i've had bosses that i've liked i've had great bosses that i've liked i've had great bosses that i didn't like i've had bad bosses that i did like but i've never had a bad boss that i did like yeah like that fourth component never yeah. exists yeah and not that that's a solution for anybody listening but that's kind well of actually of that's i mean that is a good I think that's a great
1: input actually, because it kind of relays a, there's a lot of moving parts like everything else in, you know, human interaction. You know, I, I guess you can sum it up is you got to live it. So when I say you got to figure it out on your own, everybody in your division or underneath you or even your peers uh, or even your seniors, you know, how friendly do you want to be with the department heads? How friendly do you want to be with the XO or the CO? Giving them their space as the senior officer going both ways uh, that it's very dynamic mm-hmm. and, but just being aware of the professional relationship and background often is all officers need to understand that, you know, Hey, thanks for inviting me over to your
0: house. But I, you know, I, I just, I don't think that's a great idea, yeah. you know, type of thing. They'll respect that. Yeah, they um, will. you've mentioned a couple of times the seventh fleet. I'd love to ask you some questions about that because now I, I see you, you know, you're really looking down on everything. Right. And I know that there are some, public newsworthy events that people are familiar with. And we could talk about those if you want to use them as examples. But I'm, I'm wondering if I could start the question off by saying, as you ascended to that rank in and that, in that billet position, Seventh Fleet Commander, was it pretty easy for you to identify traits that would derail leaders or cause them to fail? And do you have any stories that you could tell listeners, without names, of course, but the, here are some things where I saw leaders fail and, and here's where you could head that off at the pass. Yeah, you know, it may be tough to come up with specific examples, but there are some
1: some threads that go through all that. And we talked about early, and it really matters at all levels that you know the biggest. Well, there's two big sins. The more senior you get, one is integrity. You always have to protect your integrity. And when you get into discussions of hey, did you ever make career decisions in that way, well, you just you just can't be clouded by that. You, know, you just have to kind of rely on what is the right answer of the day. Just because somebody doesn't like it above you, they were probably in the same scenario at some point. And just understand that you are not unique in these hard decisions you have to make. So never surrender your integrity. It's just a horrible lifestyle. You know, I've had to work through this at all levels, including the senior officer level, where I've had to sit people down and, and have an integrity discussion. The other is your proficiency, putting the work in to understand your job and and this kind of gets into a lot of the other elements we spoke about, but at the end of the day, when tasks were assigned, uh, tasks are arranged, uh, planned and executed, there's an element of trust at the fleet level that the community delivered me a platform and the commanding officer has developed a team that can do the missions I need them to do without a lot of dialogue. Now we do a lot of dialogue, but it's more of the scene setting in the background, the risk discussions and that kind of stuff to, 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 to get them going. But those are the elements that you absolutely have to stoke all the time and have constant discussion all the time, proficiency and integrity. And I don't mean necessarily lying in integrity. I mean, there's just a lot of ways you can kind of wrap the integrity piece into that. It's so exceedingly important in our business to have the, just the absolute trust that, uh, uh, that you need to execute these missions. You know, I'll give you a, an element of operating the fleet that we came across that that turned out to be a very big positive in the end. But we were having a lot of material failures in the boat in the in the fleet. All communities, and I can I can kind of go through. And you mean stuff breaking. That's what you mean, right? Like maintenance and and, uh, stuff breaking. Stuff that shouldn't be breaking. So we'd have this discussion that, hey, let's have a discussion about attrition. You know, most people look at attrition as getting shot up, sunk, um, combat attrition. But attrition can happen a lot of different ways. So if you can't get your platform to see or keep it at sea, in my counter on my wall, you're attrited. You are not on the field doing the job. And I don't really make a distinction whether it's combat or not. Um, it's not going to be any different. You're either broken or you're not, and you're, and you're out there doing it. So we we started having data points stack up. You know the, the DDGs all were having failed gas turbine generators and spy radar issues. Submariners were having motor generator and condenser issues. The Aviators were having, they had a lot of issues that most they managed, but like test benches and stuff like that were, were starting to mount up. Some of it was innocuous. You couldn't directly tie to... Up jets, but then when you realize when test benches are going down, then it starts to aircraft because you can't do the the testing, the maintenance, and everything you need to keep them up. So we started picking these very ripe targets in each community, and I even you know sent some of my chiefs out from those communities with a little nuclear love to kind of you know figure out why this has all happened. So this gets to a very strong nuclear tenet that other communities have. They just call it different things. And, and when you're dealing with other communities, a lot of what you are dealing with is language barriers because we're all, you know, human nature-driven, success-oriented, type A personalities. So uh, in, in nuclear power, we have these things called third-order, second-order, and first-order deficiencies. Some other communities call it leading indicators, you know, whatever you want to call it. But when I said earlier we celebrate mistakes, what I meant is we celebrate third-order deficiencies. Uh, we know things are breaking and going wrong every day on every submarine out there. So if you're the one submarine that's never reporting any problems or whenever I ask you, is everything OK? And you say yeah, everything's great. I'm questioning your integrity right there because mm-hmm. I know things are breaking. I've been out there, you know, so many times now. Is it hard integrity? Are you lying to me? Yeah, probably not. It's probably more in the category of hey, yeah, you know, nothing to your attention. Right. Nothing at your level. Mm-hmm. And I'm typically, you know, working through the Commodores anyway. But the reality is it's it turns into a very stark conversation at some point. What you want to do is live in the world of third-order deficiencies because that's the stuff that breaks every day. Oil leaks, you know, admin issues. We know where it may be. Second-order deficiencies are a little bit more serious. And this is what we were dealing with in the fleet, where stuff is breaking. Ships are coming offline. And then the first-order deficiencies are loss of life, explosions, you know, you know, bad stuff. And we had a couple of those too. No loss of life, but some, you know, some serious mishaps. So absent these third order deficiencies, what is your barometer to know you're heading towards a second order deficiency? And this is what the team went out to go figure out the gas turbine generators. All right. Well, we found out in almost every case, there was a lot of third order deficiencies. They were telling you that gas turbine generator was going to fail. And, and the submariners. It kinda of come, come off their game as well. I had submariners going down there, same thing. You know, a lot of indicators that you were gonna break, but for whatever reason you ignored them, you know, thought the mission was more important and you kinda of plowed through it, not recognizing that once you hit a second order deficient, you're offline <laughs> and I've mm-hmm. lost the platform. Right. So we had to really kinda of do, you know, training across 35,000 personnel on the power of getting after these third order deficiencies and getting whatever help you need at that level. Well, it's fixable before we hit second and first order deficiencies. Very fortuitously, you know, we had this discussion ahead of COVID and we quickly realized that how hard it was going to be for a sailor or Marine first command, you know, 18, 19 year old coming to a command in Okinawa for Marines or or Sasebo, or Yokosuka for the Navy. And the first thing we do is, you know, you're, we're bringing you into this country that doesn't look like anything you've ever seen. They don't speak English. They don't drive on the same side of the road. You know, pick a stress point. And <laughs> then we stick you in a, in a box for two weeks for your quarantine. And then you test positive, and then we stick you in a box again for two weeks. So is anybody worried about the mental, you know, issues of this? And I had a phenomenal chaplain, Catholic priest, and I had a phenomenal... Command Master Chief, who was an aviation mechanic. So, you know, our chaplains support the Marines. So we had a lot of insight into the Marines through this chaplain, and we had a lot of insight into the uh, aviation community, which was my largest community out there as we were going through this. And they were able to apply the third order, second order, first order deficiency to suicides to the point where, all right, third order ideations, you know, maybe serious conversations, second order is an attempt, and first order is success. Well, they deputized a bunch of people, went to every wardroom, and they were, you know, all over this. So despite the stress of COVID, I want to say we went the longest period without a suicide in Seventh Fleet history. Oh, that's great. Because, of you know, these two leaders understanding an ability to an, apply a concept to a completely unrelated area and get believers. You know, this is in, you know, infinitely understandable to any uh, chief's locker, uh, any, any wardroom. And they were on it. So, we, so the third order deficiencies in suicide went through the roof. Second orders went to zero. Where we were having, you know, attempts, uh, forcing no successes. All the attempts went away. Everything went away because they were able to swarm this at a level where it was correctable. It was an amazing display. Then the Floyd thing happened. And uh, this was towards the end of my tour. So we tried to apply a three-two-one to that one. It got very difficult because now you're dealing with unconscious bias. And so I would actually do this myself. I would go down and talk to the go lockers. And, uh, and it really typically ended in a home, homework assignment for every chief's locker. You need to come up with third order deficiencies for unconscious bias. And I said, I don't know what the answer is. This is another one of those cases where, hey, you got to have the dialogue with the team. I suspect it resides somewhere in you gotta have close friends that can tell you that you are biased because you're not gonna see it yourself and you gotta believe them and trust it. But this is over to you guys to figure out because this is this is a varsity level right. problem. And quickly explain Floyd
0: for our listeners to this.
1: So this was the murder by the police officer and it was, you know, just generated a racial storm across the country. Right. Um that filtered Lighted its way down into I the I personally Navy as well. believe rightfully so. And because I felt that way, uh, I immediately felt that my fleet was susceptible to that. Yeah. And we did it. We did uncover a lot of personal stories. And we did, we didn't initiate it, but we embraced it. You know, it came down from above. Hey, you have to have small group discussions about this. So we did. I mean, you didn't have to convince us that, <laughs> that that's what needed yeah, to it happen. Comes back to the dialogue. I think. It comes back to the dialogue. And holy cow, we, you know, we, under, we uncovered a lot of personal stories about racial bias. Yeah. Racial bias, mm-hmm. not unconscious bias. So then you try to drill downwards and backwards and say, all right, was that a... You know, was it a deliberate bias? Was it an unconscious bias? I said, we have to get downwards and backwards to something we can actually fix at what we would consider the third order deficiency. So it doesn't matriculate to a hazing event. It doesn't matriculate to a kid getting out of the Navy because it's an environment that's untenable to him. Those are, to me, second order deficiencies of racial bias. You know, I don't, I, I think in most military commands, you have trouble getting to a first order you know, a murder or something like that, but they've happened. Uh, you can't be ignorant that it can happen. But boy, getting into those, you know, deck plate level indicators where if you're a junior, it may seem very obvious to you, but the senior may have no idea he or she is even doing that. Right. So this is where it gets very, very hard.
0: <laughs> but right. You got to get after it. Right. So, sticking with the Seventh Fleet for a moment, I'm wondering if you can share some of the things that you learned about uh, the McCain-Fitzgerald collision. What sort of... After action leadership, critiquing, can you do there that could be valuable to upcoming ship skippers or even junior officers who are going to be serving on ships from that incident?
1: Yeah, I think, you know, anybody who was in the orbit of Fitzgerald or McCain is obligated to talk about it because the lessons were so rich and so foundational to the Navy writ large. Matter of fact, the discussions of Fitz and McCain that I become most impatient with is when... It's considered to be a surface warfare problem. McCain was just, McCain and Fitz, I mean, they happened in close proximity. They were just the first to the accident. I mean, this could have happened to any community because we were all, all on that trajectory. And I make sure people understand that, and I cut them off pretty quickly when they say, oh, that was a SWO issue, uh, not at all. Um, and it was physically, but the, the lessons and the concepts uh, were
0: Navy-wide. There were there some feet. third-order deficiencies that could have been identified as yeah. So, you know,
1: fairly high level of third order deficiencies, but what was missing out in Seventh fleet at the time? And it wasn't just a Seventh fleet problem. It was a Navy wide issue, which is kind of manifested in Seventh fleet. Matter of fact, the Seventh fleet commander at the time was pretty vocal about, you know, a lot of the challenges with the fleet. So the guy I really, I wasn't out there when it happened. I was actually a task force commander out there. I came back to Washington and while I was in back in Washington, that happened And then I went back out and relieved 7th Fleet as a normal progression. But the 7th Fleet commander at the time was pretty much responsible for kind of riding the ship out there and uh, and filling in a lot of the gaps. So, you know, to keep this focused, I will tell you the two biggest things that were fixed by my predecessor were the external inspection. It's very aggressive now in all communities out there. Uh, and we're all very sensitive to it. Something that's very common in the nuclear Navy, but even some of our external inspections were, were struggling at the time. And what's wh- an external inspection? You have, you know, somebody out off your command coming in and looking at your operation. Okay, got it. So that's, you know, that's about the most fundamental. There's a lot of different ways we do. We do, we do operational ones, we do nuclear ones, and, you know, there's a whole gamut of perhaps too many of them, but you have to have some. There weren't too many going on out in 7th Fleet. And the mentality in 7th Fleet at the time, and I was part of that mentality, when I was a task force commander is, hey, we're out here operating all the time. We're on the edge all the time. Nobody's better than us. Right. Here's the risk in that kind of mentality, especially at the unit level. You're only as good as the smartest person on board. Yeah, And, you know, that's kind of a clever way to, to say it. But the reality is, if you're not very smart and you're the smartest guy on board, the performance of your team is going to sink to your level of knowledge. And it doesn't need to be, you know, Smart, intuitive, smart. It's more of uh, both gray matter and experience. You know, depending on you know how you were brought up and put into that position. So what can happen over time is your standards can slowly degrade unnoticed. You don't know that you're going beyond the absolute standards. And there's a lot of things that will drive standards in a command. You know, schedule, personal turnover, illness. You know, whatever it could be on key key players. But if you don't have somebody coming in that is absolutely grounded in the absolute standards, taking a look at you and giving you that feedback, you may never know that you are way below in the red lines on performance. So what we found were a lot of people were, you know, taking shortcuts, writing their own procedures, you know, thinking they're doing the right things based on, you know, the missions they were performing, but, you know, really getting themselves into a position of too familiar with the environment and not attuned to the fundamentals that keep you safe. So that was all corrected. And I think everybody was kind of happy to have that correction. Uh, so people could come in and either validate, yeah, you're operating properly, or, hey, we need to park you for a while and get you up to speed. So we went through you know that whole gamut. The other piece was you know, our commitment to maintenance, forward-deployed maintenance. And Phil Sawyer was, was my predecessor. And this really became his crusade to make sure every ship, submarine, aircraft, squadron got every allotted day of maintenance that they're supposed to and he did and he did that and when he turned over to me very clearly say the problem's not solved he said that was just the biggest first step and then where i took it from phil was all right what's actually happening in those days of maintenance so we had a lot of work to do to improve the, uh, the actual performance of the maintenance that was happening but just you know Making sure the schedules were inviolate, getting the ships on in on time to start their maintenance is what Phil and it was a colossal task because you have nothing but operational pressure. So you talk about being in the business saying no, (laughs) Phil coined it and uh, in a very positive way that and he was able to explain it in such a way that that, yeah, hey, I'm not going to be able to support this today. But, you know, I'm I'm after the long term health so I don't have to tell you this over and over again, but if we don't get this ship in now and get it corrected, you know, then it's not going to be available. For, we're going to be chasing this, you know, forever type of thing. Mm-hmm. And you can come up with a hundred examples that, that fit into that. So, you know, for me going back out there, after knowing I was probably part of the problem early on, and then seeing everything that happened since I left, I had no idea what I was coming back into, but I was pleasantly surprised to see, and I thought we were pretty high functioning, when I was out there as a one-star, um, when I came out there as the commander, I mean, the fleet was operating at a level that was where it was supposed to be, frankly. And it was all because uh, nobody ran from the flame, from the CNO on down. You know, Congress got involved. Everybody got involved. And actually, Congress was pretty supportive of this whole thing. It was a little bit of a wake-up call for the you know, the four committees that support us that how serious it is to you know, kind of get behind the curve on proficiency, get behind the curve on uh, maintenance. And and Congress came down and helped us with a couple of red lines. Like you can't have a ship out in the FDNF now for more than 10 straight years. It has to get back. It has to get into a major depot availability. You know, we would get the air wing back to Fallon on a, on a regular basis to make sure that they were constantly, you know, rechecked to that absolute standard to make sure that, you know, nobody was straying anymore. Right, And I will tell you... Nobody's willing to come off of that, which is good because this is this is how a forward deployed Navy has to operate, right? Because there's so many dynamics. If you can't count on that foundation, then you yeah. can, you can count on fisses and McCain happen regularly yeah. with all platforms. So
0: pushing a little bit on this, yeah. At the end of the day, two ships hit each other. Were there third, second order deficiencies that could have been recognized by the commanding officers of those ships that could have? prevented something like that in other words if a listener is coming up into command of a ship soon is there something that they can glean from this conversation between you and i that i think you're supply? seeing
1: every element of every conversation we have manifest uh, on those two ships and you know whether the service warfare community needed to respond the way they did and we were all in full support mm-hmm. but their commitment to building new trainers and making sure that every officer understands that first and foremost, you are a professional mariner.
0: Mm-hmm. You
1: have to understand being a mariner, being able to drive a ship, being able to communicate, being able to understand your displays. And, you know, when this was just going down, and I, I certainly don't want this to be perceived as a service warfare thing, because it's not. I, I run into the same issues on, on submarines. But in this particular case, while I was... My very first one-star job before Fitz and McCain happened, I had the opportunity to ride a lot. I was the ASW, essentially the ASW commander for the Navy and the mine warfare commander for the Navy. So I spent a lot of time in strike groups, you know, riding around on the DDGs and flying in the ASW helicopters. This is all part of our, our job. But I was on one command, and I tend to be up in the middle of the night. I think that's where the richest learning environments are if you're trying to observe how ships operate. And I came across these two ensigns, uh, they were on the bridge of a destroyer and one was an MIT graduate. One was a Harvard graduate. Does that mean you're smart? No, but good indication that, you know, you got something going on. You've got some intellectual yeah. horsepower. Yeah. If right. you got into those universities and you did well. So we were, up, they were in qualifications. They weren't qualified. So I said, Hey, all right. So when are you getting qualified? And they're like, well, we have our boards next week. Pretty excited about it. And and they, there's a, if, you, if you've never spent any time on a destroyer, it's well worth your time. God, these, yeah, yeah. these are beautiful ships and you get an immediate sense of heaviness of, there's a lot going on here. Right. has got a lot, a lot of, and they're, they're responsible for, I don't know, half a dozen, dozen major mission areas at the drop of a hat all the time. And they were my absolute, I have this weird love affair with destroyers now after being in 7th Fleet. They were my horsepower. They were my, you know, 365 every day, you know, 24 hours a day. They were always in the face of the adversary, the Chinese in this case, every day. Uh, they were my communication tool with the Chinese and my feedback tool. This all came later. If I had known that, I probably would have been more aggressive on the rest of the story where I talking to these kids. I said, all right, well, um, if you're ready to qualify, maybe you can teach me some things. So I'm looking around the bridge and I said, Hey, so what does that piece of gear do? It was a radar standalone radar. Uh, I didn't know what it was. Well, they didn't either. Yeah. <laughs> so, uh, MIT took lead and I told him, say, well, let's meet on the bridge tomorrow. You can tell me all about, all about this thing. So we met on the bridge the next day and, and boy, did he tell me about it, how it's employed, uh, how it's built, the history of radar. I mean, yeah. <laughs> this kid ran. I said, "Oh, yeah, he's got a lot going on." I actually did learn things from this kid. So we had a you know a few laughs and we were talking about it. Then I looked at the next piece of gear. So what's that? You know, they both stare at their feet, and uh, I say, "Look, I, I know you're not qualifying, you know, officer of the deck here, or maybe you are. I don't, you know, wherever they were. There, I said, but hey, the bridge, you know, this is your space, and you have to understand everything." that's going on. And I, you know, I kind of talk, talk to them. Like I've talked to submarine JOs that you just need to pick a a mark on the bridge and you work left to right. And you need to be able to explain everything that's going on there, the responsibilities of every watch the reports you're going to get, the information you're expecting. I said, here's the thing. You can't be figuring out how to turn this stuff on when the missile's incoming. Uh, You need to be leading the problem all the time. And I thought it was, you know, my little piece of help with these JOs but here you got very smart JOs that are eager to learn. Clearly, neither one of them were running from this. I mean, they were. They wanted to meet me again the next night on the bridge. Yeah. But I was, you know, I was getting off the boat. But it just goes to tell you again, it comes down to your proficiency as an officer is your currency, and currency as in monetary currency mm-hmm. on your ability to gain the respect you need to lead and to work through these increasingly complex problems. So in this particular case, it was a destroyer, but I sought opportunities and found them in other communities after that happened. And this is this is well before Fitz and McCain. It disturbed me and messaged me that much that, you know, we have got to get these kids. And I know you have a question about, hey, the next generation coming down. Well, this is it. These JOs come into environments way more complex than we came into. Uh, I had, you know, this little net called Russia during the, the Soviet Union during the Cold War. Everything was focused on them. The order of battle, we had to memorize it. We had to regurgitate it. You know, everything was a gag reflex about Russia. Well, now, yeah, they got Russia, they got China, they got Iran, they got North Korea. Complete different scenarios, different dynamics, and you got to be ready for all that. So if you don't put the time in early to learn your trade, you may never get another opportunity to recover.
0: Mm -hmm.
1: So these training commands are not social clubs. You have got to get through there in anger Mm -hmm. that you learn your trade. Because when you show up to that first wardroom or that first platoon, that's what they're going to be looking for. And they're going to want to see a dose of humility too because you you may think you know a lot coming in. And this is why it's so important to learn all you can in the training command. But the learning really starts when you show up to your first command. Mm-hmm. And your ability to ask questions, respond to those questions, learn from those questions will build that immediate relationship with your your men and women that are following
0: you. And they understand uh, as you build that level of knowledge. Yeah, I'll leave, I'll even add to the folks listening who are enlisted leaders, it's also your responsibility to do those things for yourself. It's also your responsibility to take that new officer and help mold him into somebody who's going to be a proficient officer in the, in the future because their vice Admiral Bill murr's was Ensign Bill Merz at some yeah. point. And somewhere along the line, there was some enlisted influence that helped you be a great officer yeah. And so it's not only about going out there and asking your questions too, but it's setting the conditions to learn from the men and women that are in your command who have potentially been doing it longer than you have when you show up as that new junior officer too. And you just need to respect that Mm coming
1: in that your learning is just starting. Now it's the application of the training command. And this is where it really becomes fun, but it's hard because now the, now you are dealing in an environment of dynamic variables that are going to be moving all the time. And I told you, you know, I hope we had time to, uh, so I'll just inject it here on uh, uh, on how we brought sailors aboard the Memphis. And this was totally driven by my chief of the boat. And uh, and he got a lot of it from the Marine Corps because he had done several tours as as a corpsman with the Marines. And for, you know, for the listeners, if you're not a Marine, uh, the Marines don't have corpsmen. Uh, the Navy, is, you know, Navy provides chaplains and corpsmen and a few others uh, to the Marine Corps, and in some cases, the Coast Guard. Mm-hmm. So that... Priest, I told you about at Seventh Fleet is now the chaplain of the Coast Guard. Oh wow! But he's still a Navy chaplain, sure. and he'll do that tour. And he wears this weird uniform of a Coast Guard uniform with a Navy hat. Oh,
0: <laughs> interesting. <laughs> okay. make sure he has yeah. his
1: he has his roots. But my chief of the boat, you know, I, I I'll still say he's one of a I million. Mean, uh, an enormous man, 300 pounds, big guy for a submarine. He was yeah. a he was a corman, and as we used to say, the. Uh, uh, and he ran, you know, he ran the JOs and he ran the, the chiefs and he knew the JOs well. And being a corpsman, you know, there's always the the fear of their retaliatory rectal exam if you, <laughs> right? Yeah,
0: the silver bullet,
1: <laughs> right. <laughs> but, you know, the JOs used to brag about them. You know, so, you know Mike Cobb has naval battles tattooed on his forearms, uh, you know, type of thing. You know, he was very committed to bringing, um, bringing sailors on properly because of the same mentality of, uh, you have to get them on the step early, or they will be non-contributors. And if you kill them early with hazing or ridicule on things that you know they don't know, they can't possibly know until you live in the environment. So uh, one of the things that he used to be very firm with is he always respected the, the recruit commands that they came through. So they get, you know, they get their ball cap out of the recruit commands. They do these things, battle stations, which is their culminating event. So they would come aboard, and uh, he would bring them out in front of the crew. Uh, we'd have quarters on the pier. You can't get the whole crew in one spot on a submarine, so he always did it on the pier when you're in port. And he would bring the sailor up and introduce him to the crew. He would explain where he's from, you know, his background. He would never ask the sailor to do that in front of the crew because that's, just, that's a hard first day for a sailor. But then he would look at the sailor and tell him that we've been expecting you, we've been attracting you, we're so happy you're here. He would take the sailor's hat, the recruit hat, uh, and believe it or not, some commands used to just throw it in the water. And he would put it in a Ziploc bag, give it back to the sailor. So you're going to want to keep this. And then he would put a Memphis hat okay. on the kid. so you're part of a new tribe now. Right. And then he would take the kid down and walk him through the ship and then explaining what his first week, his first month, his first you know, year is going to be like on board, you know, importance of qualifications, all that kind of stuff. Then he would take him back to the go locker. And then he would have the kid call his parents or whoever his significant was. He said tell your mom you're here you know blah, blah, blah. so then then he would take the phone say this is the chief of the boat i got your boy just boys back then yeah and he said uh uh you got any questions you give me a call and they would see I mean, that that's leadership you talk about exposing yourself right. and but his philosophy was if i win the family i win the sailor mm-hmm. i said 90 percent of the issues can be handled by the family so he would get you know calls from a distressed mom hey I, you know i think my son's really having trouble there and i said well you know what did you guys talk about well i asked him if he if he spoke to that nice cob <laughs> <laughs> and he would say, "Alright, I'll talk to him and yeah. uh, and then he would pull the kid in
0: and they'd kind of work it out." Yeah. That's also retention too, right? It so, is. I mean like you, you know the first day of retention is the first day that they come into their new command and people may be like, "I can't wait to get out of this. I'm already getting yelled at or yeah, exactly hey, right. welcome to the family."
1: And uh, so he just fundamentally believed that every sailor mattered. And we had, you know, a lot of supporting discussions uh, down the road. You know, we had this one we have, we're like any other community. Hey, you continue to continue. You expected to continue to progress, right. And to qualify for the next, you know, higher level. And then to go on and do things at a higher level on a different submarine. Well, uh, you know, we discovered, we had a few sailors that were just not going to go anywhere. So you can either get rid of them or in my Cobb's case, he said, why don't we just celebrate for what they are. And we have a great example. We had a, a helmsman and we did, we spent a lot of time under the ice and, uh, and we, we get into some pretty precise ship maneuvering to get around ice keels and everything else under there. Uh, and this kid just became part of the boat when he was driving it, but it was all we could do just to get him qualified to drive the boat and to qualify in submarines. He was not going to qualify anything else. And as soon as we told him, Hey, we're good with you just being the helm. You could see the weight of the world was lifted off this kid. And I said, but Hey, but the, the feedback is when your tour is done, you're going to leave the Navy mm-hmm. um, because he you know he's, he was, Totally okay with it. He had so much fun his last two years in the Navy, to the point, and he was so good. and He always stood that watch. So when he left the boat, the crew unbolted the helm chair and gave it to him. Oh, that's awesome as a departure gift because he was the helm. Uh, so whenever I needed a kid, you know, I said, "You know, where's Reefstick?" And, and and they would go find that kid and they'd put him in the chair and and I put my hand on his shoulder. I said, "I, I need you. I need you focused for the next couple hours." And pff, he was in his. He was in his. I love those kind of stories. <laughs> so, you know, just again, this goes back to a couple of things we hit on that you just have to be so in tune to the talent you have around you. And you have to adjust to that talent. Find the strengths, find the weaknesses, and uh, and be a very dynamic, engaging, dialogue-driven uh, leader. And you'll
0: find that you'll learn a lot. Yeah. Sa- sage advice for everybody. I, I loved your comment before about, and, and we're we're coming up on the end here. I'm going to give you a chance to jump in and say anything that I didn't ask you that you want to hit on. But you're talking before about the the destroyer, how you fl- fell in love with the destroyer community. If there is a parallel life, Dave Armstrong is a blue water Swo somewhere. Yeah. I you know, and I've never even been on one yeah. of those. Hey, want to invite me out on one to see the? T- give me a call. But I I can just close my eyes and see it. I think if I hadn't been a marine, I probably would have been a cruiser yeah. destroyer Swo guy. I don't know about the submarines, maybe. You never know. know, Um, I don't know if my grades were good enough, but. So, you know, I told you why I went
1: submarines. It certainly wasn't to be a submariner. It was, (laughs) you know, the quick, quick way out of the Navy with a great resume. And, you know, nobody was more predisposed probably not to like submarines Mm -hmm. than I was. The the community just won me over. Yeah. But early in my Naval Academy career, I thought I wanted to be a Marine. And I I think I would have been very happy uh, being a Marine. But, you know, you talk about. If you could do it over again, you know, I wish I could spend time in every community Mm -hmm. because they all do great things and they all have a great fun. Uh, There wasn't a wardroom, a ready room that I walked into that it wasn't the exact same banter, the exact same discussions. Uh, You know, it's just, we're we're just kind of, you know, wired a certain way at that level. And they all have the same tendencies and they all have, Fun. Yeah. And uh and even the ones that aren't predisposed to stay in the Navy or the Marine Corps, for one, they they tend to enjoy it. There's always those that don't. But regardless, you're gonna talk about it the rest of your life. Yeah. Because it's that impacting. So when I talk to JOs about retention, and I'm not a hard sell on submarines. I just don't think you can be hard sell on submarines. You know, you it's either in your blood or you're not. And and your JO tour is gonna tell you that or not. But I always encourage every junior officer in every community take your shore duty you know get your good navy deal decompress reflect and then if you decide yeah hey i want to go at it again then great uh if not you got plenty of time to set up your transition to get out but you've done your time i mean you met your obligation nobly honorably you have nothing to be ashamed of but i do tell them that in the end but know this you're going to talk about it for the rest of your life
0: yeah that's the submarines
1: in particular are that unique and the crews are that tight that uh, you'll never forget. And you'll remember everybody that was on that boat with you. You'll remember their spouse's name. You'll remember whether they have kids or not. And yeah. uh, it's just, uh, so if you, you know, if you read like the Gladwell books, you know, there's something magical about 120 people. It's it's about the size that so you can maintain a close relationship with everybody. Uh, and it's, it's the number he actually put in one of his books, maybe 125. So when you look back at your time on submarines, you realize, yeah, actually when I walk around the boat, I knew every kid I knew, I knew his story. I could have a dialogue with him. I knew his favorite team because it's a small elite team and you can actually get to know him over time. Now, you know, you're at sea with him a lot. So yeah, there's a lot of opportunity for that,
0: but you don't realize the magic often until
1: later when you look,
0: when you look back at it. Well, here I am with this podcast, you know, 33 years later after getting commissioned, I'm still talking about. I really applaud you doing this. Um, was there anything that I missed that you wanted to talk there about? There is one or?
1: topic I'd like to talk about. It's really for uh, targeting commanding officers and XOs, but there's a lot to learn from it, from uh, JOs. And it's the concept of MAST, uh, which is, you know, the sole responsibility and authority of the commanding officer on board a ship. And this is, you know, the adjudication of, of a failing. I've been in one. Yeah. Oh, They're not a witness. Fun. Yeah. So I really struggled with MAST as a CO. And I, uh, and I put a lot of time into them, a lot of studying. And this was a little bit new to the command when I got there. And I know you had some hazing discussions in there, but my first mast was a hazing event. And I, and I have to admit, when I was a J.O., I was part of the hazing problem. I actually liked hazing. I liked being hazed, and I liked hazing. Uh, similar. Yes. And it was part of the community. But, you know, it really depends on, it's a personal thing. And if you, you know, were not one of the cool kids or whatever, you've probably been hazed your whole life and you recognize you're walking into the same environment and you can see how damaging it can be. My dolphins were tacked on so hard. it broke the door of the head behind me and it, you know, ripped apart my chest mm-hmm. uh, when it, when it happened. And I loved it. But boy, did I learn over time how damaging it can be? So my, when I was commanding officer of the USS Memphis, my very first mass case was a hazing incident. It was what we call a blanket party. So this kid was struggling. So some of the senior petty officers took it upon themselves to crash his rack in the middle of the night and, and, um, and beat the crap out of him. So here's the added funness of this particular mast. The three culprits were my senior sailor of the year, my junior sailor of the year, and my runner-up senior sailor of the year. Oh, wow. These are the three guys in front of me, my very first mast case. So the XO and the Cobb and I spent hours on this mast case before we actually held the mast on how it came out. And because this is a standard setting event for the ship, if there ever was one. And of course, you're in the position of nobody's above the law type thing. But these are the heart and soul of the leadership of the blue shirts, you know, below chief petty officers on board the boat. And interestingly, uh, all three were getting out of the Navy, uh, which was another alarm bell that we, we addressed later. So during the course of the mast, we went through this whole thing and they were you know, completely accepting of what they did was wrong. There was no hiding from the flame. Um, you got, you know, as I said, they got, kind of got, got caught up in their leadership roles and they felt fundamentally that it was their responsibility to correct the sailor. And they certainly recognized that that was not the way to correct the sailor. So I was like, well, that may be, and I kind of explained to them, all right, you're my first mass case. I'm coming into this command. I've been here two weeks. And this is what I'm presented with. The sailor of the year, the junior sailor of the year, and the runner-up what does that say about the rest of this boat? So I really made them explain that to me. And in the end, what, the, what we all agreed to, the triad agreed to in advance was I'm going to give them an opportunity to stay on the boat for an extra six months and be model citizens and give training and do everything, you know, to get themselves back. And then I will send them on their way with glowing reports. And uh, so two of them took me up on it. The other one left being thrown out of the Navy. Because that was the alternative. And, uh, and the two guys that stayed already had firefighting jobs lined up. The last thing they needed was. So there was a little bit of leverage on these guys. Sure. Yeah. But the point here is do not take MAST lightly. It's a life-changing event for both you, the commanding officer, the XO sitting next to you, and that poor kid at the other end of the, what we call the green table because it's always a green. And I'll leave you the one other MAST story. I had this kid who was an engineering laboratory technician. I won't tell you his name. I'm sure he wouldn't appreciate his name being thrown out here, but uh, I mean, it's a good story in the end. He was one of these guys that kind of caught up in the, got caught up in the success of the command. The ship was doing extremely well. He was new, he was struggling. So at the end of the day, he started having integrity issues to try to gloss over mostly log taking, which is very, that's our, that's our fundamental data for the health of the reactor plant. So it's a big deal. And he's responsible for the chemistry of the reactor plant. So it became an issue. so, before he got wrapped up in this, we had a dependence cruise, I don't know, maybe four, four or five weeks before that. And his father happened to be on the bridge while we were heading out on the dependence cruise. And a long talk with him. He talked about how, how much his son was over the moon to be on board, loves this team, worked so hard. I said, yeah, he seems to be doing well. I, I knew who the kid was. I checked in every sailor. I get another luxury of being in a small command. You actually get to meet everybody coming in. And we really talked about the, you know, the opportunity. He talked about, the, you know, the hard background this kid had, blah, blah, blah. You know, typical story. And so the next thing you know, he's in, at Mast with me. So I'm looking at this kid. He's looking at me. And I always try to make sure I get to the brainstem and Mast. You know, if I can elicit tears, trembling lips, then I know I'm at a point where I, we can start rebuilding. <laughs> right. <laughs> that I have a believer now. Didn't take long with this kid. And he's a big kid. And I he kind of explained he was so ashamed so distraught. So I asked him, I said, Hey, did you did you talk about this with your dad? And he knows knows I knew his dad or met his dad. And I said, Yes, sir, I did. So what did he say? He said, You let me down. Oh. Yeah. And I was like, Man, I'm getting choked up here. He was crying, I was crying. And you can see this is two thousand six, two thousand five. Here I am seventeen years later. Uh, and I'm still get choked up. Yeah. And I just feel like commanding officers have such an obligation during mm-hmm. these events in this kid's life. And we went on to, you know, use that in some other ones as training events. But one of the, one of the challenges with my ship was everything went to mast and I had this docket of mass cases for the most menial things. So we had a little you know, woodshed with the chiefs that, uh, you got to understand when a kid comes to mast, I'm assuming every resource has been expended at this point. And I'm not seeing that. You know, kid late to work, kid not getting a haircut. So you got to be kidding me. You guys stop being cheap petty officers? And this is before I had Big Al, my cob, okay. who completely cleaned that up when he came. He was appalled that this was happening. And these were good chiefs, good chiefs, poorly trained fix that. We have this thing called EMI, extra military instruction. Mm-hmm. I said you got a whole tool bag here to prevent him from having to go to mass. I said you, you guys need to put yourself in their shoes. You were there, <laughs> right? I mean, we make half of them probably went to we mass We are themselves. all about yeah. you know learning from mistakes here, not killing careers on day one. Right. Uh, it's very hard in the nuclear navy to get out from underneath a mast mast case. I'll bet. So this is, you know, kind of go all day on this. I don't, I'll try not to, but this was another, and I'm not really professing, this is the method to do it because I got caught speeding. You know, a lot of times I would use the guillotine. If I thought the kid was sa- savable, I didn't want this mast in his record. So I would tell him, I said, all right, you have six months to impress me that you've learned from this. And we'd give him a whole list of things to do. And then you come and talk to me. And then invariably six months later, I have some sailors knocking at my door. And I'd forgotten all about it. Yeah. He says, hey, Skipper, you said, you know, if I, you know. Prove my performance. This and as an S. Today is six months. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> so I go in my bottom drawer, I pull it out, and I throw it in the shit can. Yeah, uh, and you know, never left the boat. Well, yeah, that's not really
0: the you know, in the CEO's purview. But, you know, at this point, it's that it's what we were referring to before? It was like the integrity, but it's like kind of like yeah. one of those areas. Yeah, well, exactly right. So some of the stuff is in your purview of of handling. Yeah, and there's a final point here. I'll leave with
1: that is you know, and no matter where you are. And I know you have deep feelings about risk aversion and, uh, and it can be so paralyzing, paralyzing in a tragic way if it manifests in, in, in the wrong environment. But here's the thing. It's actually very hard to get fired out of the military. It really is. People, you, yeah. Yeah. Because we actually, the institution wants to save you, uh, <laughs> maybe save you from yourself. So what I was doing with MAST, yeah. Yeah, I, I knew it wasn't probably correct. And I've been advised by my team that it probably wasn't correct. But to me, it was way more important that I had the trust of these sailors uh, in a small team, high-performance environment than any personal risk to me. And it's easy to determine, well, I'm certainly not going to get fired for this, right? You know, I may get yelled at by the Commodore, which I didn't. His, one of his team during one of the inspections had figured this out and uh, reported as he should have. Commodore asked me about it. And I said, yeah, I said, all right, well, you know, and he was kind of like, both my commoners went on to four stars, so they were okay. They were pretty sharp guys. It really just my trickle, hey, you may want to just have a conversation with me before you do it. And kind of giving me that I, you know, this is one of those mm-hmm. unspoken, I support you 100% <laughs> 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 to give me a chance to support you and that uh, type of thing.
0: That's great. Well, so, thanks so much for coming on. I yeah. really appreciate the time. Two and a half hours flies by like nothing, <laughs> doesn't it? <It's> just, <laughs> well, I, I hope you added this another... thing down to something that's uh, more digestible. Probably two, uh, two hours yeah. and 25 minutes. Yeah, but yeah, yeah, uh, yeah. this was great. So thank you so much for your time. I could have spent another yeah. hour here with you. But I think your experience and the things that you've done and the environments that you've operated on, such great leadership lessons to pass uh-huh. on to everybody. The stories resonate with everybody. You had some great ones and again, just thank you so much for, for coming yeah. on and being my first submariner.
1: Well, I hope it gave you some insight into it our did. unique little community. We're actually a very small community. You know, we're one of the, the major communities, but we're
0: by a wide margin the smallest just not too many people know about us. Well, I hope that I hope I get some more on because it's a fa- it's fascinating yeah. to me. Just command underway, you're taking a nuclear reactor and putting it underwater and driving it somewhere. Yeah. It's, I mean, <laughs> that's a lot different than running a rifle company or a rifle we, battalion. We
1: do enjoy our autonomy. We kind of feel like we're the last autonomous at sea. Mm-hmm. So when we submerge, you know, we're yeah. completely out of contact, and and uh, and when we go on mission, you know, it's. Tough for sometimes operational commanders to get comfortable with no news is good news. Right, yeah. Because you may not hear from us for 60 straight days. Right. You just assume we're doing what we're supposed to be doing. Yeah. And that we roll off and communicate at the right
0: time. Yeah, we could have done a whole nother two hours or brought another guest on with the Boomer community too. I mean, just fascinating. But thank you so much for your time. All right, Dave. I really appreciate it.